Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. Personal Poems by John Greenleaf Whittier the Cross The Hero Rantoul William Forster To Charles Sumner Burns To George B. Cheever To James T. Fields The Memory of Burns In Remembrance of Joseph Sturger Brown of Osawatomie Naples A Memorial Bryant on His Birthday Thomas Star King Lines on a Flyleaf George L. Stearns, Garibaldi, to Lydia Maria Child, the singer, How Mary Grew, Sumner, Thier, Fitzgreen Halleck, William Francis Bartlett, Bayard Taylor, Our Autocrat, Within the Gate, In Memory, James T. Fields, Wilson, The Poet and the Children, A Welcome to Lowell, An Artist of the Beautiful, Mulford, to a cape and schooner. Samuel J. Tilden the Cross. Richard Dillingham, a young member of the Society of Friends, died in the Nashville Penitentiary, where he was confined for the act of aiding the escape of fugitive slaves. The cross, if rightly borne, shall be no burden, but support to thee. So, moved of old time for our sake, the holy monk of Kempen spake. Thou brave and true one, upon whom was laid the cross of martyrdom, how didst thou, in thy generous youth, bear witness to this blessed truth? Thy cross of suffering and of shame a staff within thy hands became, in paths where faith alone could see the master's steps supporting thee. Thine was the seed time. God alone beholds the end of what is sown. Beyond our vision, weak and dim, the harvest time is hid with him. Yet, unforgotten where it lies, that seed of generous sacrifice, though seeming on the desert cast, shall rise with bloom and fruit at last. 1852. The Hero. The hero of the incident related in this poem was Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, the well-known philanthropist, who when a young man volunteered his aid in the Greek struggle for independence. Oh, for a knight like Bayard, without reproach or fear, my light glove on his cask of steel, my love not on his spear. Oh, for the white plume floating sad Zupfen's field above the lion heart in battle, the woman's heart in love. Oh, that man once more were manly, woman's pride, and not her scorn, that once more the pale young mother dared to boast a man is born. But now life's slumbrous current no sun-bowed cascade wakes, no tall, heroic manhood the level dullness breaks. Oh, for a knight like Bayard, without reproach or fear, my light glove on his cask of steel, my love not on his spear. Then I said, my own heart throbbing to the time her proud pulse beat. Life hath its regal natures yet, true, tender, brave, and sweet. Smile not, fair unbeliever. One man, at least I know, who might wear the crest of Bayard or Sydney's plume of snow. Once, when over purple mountains died away the Grecian sun, and the far Selenian ranges paled and darkened, one by one, fell the Turk, a bolt of thunder, cleaving all the quiet sky and against his sharp steel lightning stood the cilio but to die. Woe for the weak and halting! The crescent blazed behind a curving line of sabers, like fire before the wind. Last to fly, and first to rally, rode he of whom I speak, when, groaning in his bridle path, sank down a wounded Greek. 
with the rich Albanian costume wet with many a ghastly stain, gazing on earth and sky as one who might not gaze again. He looked forward to the mountains, back on foes that never spare, then flung him from his saddle, and placed the stranger there. Allah, who, through flashing sabers, through a stormy hail of lead, the good Thessalian charger up the slopes of olives sped. Hot spurred the turbaned riders, he almost felt their breath, where a mountain stream rolled darkly down between the hills and death. One brave and manful struggle, he gained the solid land, and the cover of the mountains, and the carbines of his band. It was very great and noble, said the moist-eyed listener then. But one brave deed makes no hero. Tell me what he since hath been. Still a brave and generous manhood, still an honor without stain, in the prison of the Kaiser, by the barricades of saying. But dream not helm and harness the sign of valor true. Peace hath higher tests of manhood than battle ever knew. Wouldst know him now? Behold him, the cadmus of the blind, giving the dumb lip language, the idiot clay a mind. Walking his round of duty serenely day by day, with the strong man's hand of labor and childhood's heart of play. True as the knights of story, Sir Lancelot and his peers, brave in his calm endurance as they in tilt of spears. As waves in stillest waters, as stars in noonday skies, all that wakes to noble action in his noon of calmness lies. Wherever outraged nature asks word or action brave, wherever struggles labor, wherever groans a slave. Wherever rise the peoples, wherever sinks a throne, the throbbing heart of freedom finds an answer in his own. Knight of a better era, without reproach or fear. Said I not well that Bayards and Sydneys still are here? 1853. Rantoul. No more fitting inscription could be placed on the tombstone of Robert Rantoul than this. He died at his post in Congress, and his last words were a protest in the name of democracy against the fugitive slave law. One day, Along the electric wire his manly word for freedom sped. We came next morn, that tongue of fire said only. He who spake is dead. Dead? While his voice was living yet, in echoes round the pillar dome. Dead? While his blotted page lay wet with themes of state and loves of home. Dead? In that crowning grace of time, that triumph of life's zenith hour. Dead? while we watched his manhood's prime break from the slow bud into flower. Dead? He's so great, and strong, and wise, while the mean thousands yet drew breath. How deepened, through that dread surprise, the mystery and the awe of death. From the high place whereon our votes had borne him, clear, calm, earnest, fell his first words, like the prelude notes of some great anthem yet to swell. We seemed to see our flag unfurled our champion waiting in his place for the last battle of the world, the Armageddon of the race. Through him we hope to speak the word which wins the freedom of a land, and lift, for human right, the sword which dropped from Hampton's dying hand. For he had sat at Sidney's feet, and walked with Pym and Vane apart, and through the centuries, felt the beat of freedom's march in Cromwell's heart. He knew the paths the worthies held, where England's best and wisest trod, and lingering, drank the springs that welled beneath the touch of Milton's rod. No wild enthusiast of the right, self-poised and clear, he showed alway the coolness of his northern night, the right repose of autumn's day. His steps were slow, yet forward still he pressed where others paused or failed. The calm star clone with constant will, the restless meteor flashed and paled. Skilled in its subtlest while, he knew and owned the higher ends of law, 
still rose majestic on his view the awful shape the schoolmen saw. Her home the heart of God, her voice the choral harmonies whereby the stars, through all their spheres, rejoice, the rhythmic rule of earth and sky. We saw his great powers misapplied to poor ambitions, yet through all, we saw him take the weaker side, and right the wronged, and free the thrall. Now, looking o'er the frozen north, for one like him in word and act, to call her old, free spirit forth, and give her faith the life of fact. To break her party bonds of shame, and labor with the zeal of him to make the democratic name of liberty the synonym. We sweep the land from hill to strand, we seek the strong, the wise, the brave, and, sad of heart, return to stand in silence by a new-made grave. There, where his breezy hills of home look out upon his sail-white seas, the sounds of winds and waters come, and shape themselves to words like these. Why, murmuring, mourn that he, whose power was lent to party over long, heard the still whisper at the hour he set his foot on party wrong? The human life that closed so well no lapse of folly now can stain the lips whence freedom's protest fell no meaner thought can now profane. Mightier than living voice his grave that lofty protest utters o'er, through roaring wind and smiting wave it speaks his hate of wrong once more. Men of the North, your weak regret is wasted here. Arise and pay to freedom and to him your debt by following where he led the way. 1853. William Forster. William Forster, of Norwich, England, died in East Tennessee in the first month, 1854, while engaged in presenting to the governors of the states of this union the address of his religious society on the evils of slavery. He was the relative and coadjutor of the Buxtons, Gurneys, and Fries, and his whole life, extending almost to threescore and ten years, was a poor and beautiful example of Christian benevolence. He had traveled over Europe, and visited most of its sovereigns, to plead against the slave trade and slavery, and had twice before made visits to this country under impressions of religious duty. He was the father of the right Han, William Edward Forster. He visited my father's house in Haverhill during his first tour in the United States. The years are many since his hand was laid upon my head, too weak and young to understand the serious words he said. Yet often now the good man's look before me seems to swim, as if some inward feeling took the outward guise of him. As if, in passion's heated war, or near temptation's charm, through him the low-voiced monitor forewarned me of the harm. Stranger and pilgrim, from that day of meeting, first and last, wherever duty's pathway lay, his reverent steps have passed. The poor to feed, the lost to seek, to proffer life to death, hope to the erring, to the weak the strength of his own faith. To plead the captive's right, remove the sting of hate from law, and soften in the fire of love the hardened steel of war. He walked the dark world in the mild, still guidance of the light, in tearful tenderness a child, a strong man in the right. From what great perils on his way he found in prayer release, through what abysmal shadows lay his pathway unto peace. God knoweth, we could only see the tranquil strength he gained, the bondage lost in liberty, the fear and love unfeigned. And I, my youthful fancies grown the habit of the man whose field of life by angels sown the wilding vines o'er in. Low bowed in silent gratitude, my manhood's heart enjoys that reverence for the pure and good which blessed the dreaming boys. Still shines the light of holy lives like starbeams over doubt, each sainted memory, Christ-like, drives some dark possession out. O friend! 
O brother, I not in vain thy life so calm and true, the silver dropping of the rain, the fall of summer dew. How many burdened hearts have prayed their lives like thine might be, but more shall pray henceforth for aid to lay them down like thee. With weary hand yet steadfast will, in old ages and youth, thy master found thee sowing still the good seed of his truth. As on thy task field closed the day in golden skied decline, his angel met thee on the way, and lent his arm to thine. Thy latest care for man, thy last of earthly thought a prayer, O, oh, who thy mantle, backward cast, is worthy now to wear? Methinks the mound which marks thy bed might bless our land and save, as rose, of old, to life the dead who touched the prophet's grave 1854. To Charles Sumner If I have seemed more prompt to censure wrong than praise the right, if seldom to thine ear my voice hath mingled with the exultant cheer borne upon all our northern winds along, if I have failed to join the fickle throng in wide-eyed wonder, that thou standest strong in victory, surprised in thee to find Bruham's scathing power with Canning's grace combined, that he, for whom the ninefold muses sang, from their twined arms a giant athlete sprang, barbing the arrows of his native tongue with the spent shafts Latona's archer flung, to smite the python of our land and time, fell as the monster born of Chris's slime like the blind bard who in Castalian springs tempered the steel that clove the crest of kings, and on the shrine of England's freedom laid the gifts of Cumb and of Delphi's shade, small need hast thou of words of praise from me. Thou knowest my heart, dear friend, and well canst guess that, even though silent, I have not the less rejoiced to see thy actual life agree with the large future which I shaped for thee, when, years ago, beside the summer sea, white in the moon, we saw the long waves fall baffled and broken from the rocky wall, that, to the menace of the brawling flood, opposed alone its massive quietude, calm as a fate. With not a leaf nor vine nor birch spray trembling in the still moonshine, crowning it. Like God's peace. I sometimes think that night seen by the sea prophetical, for nature speaks in symbols and in signs, and through her pictures human fate divines, that rock, wherefrom we saw the billows sink in murmuring rout, Uprising clear and tall in the white light of heaven, the type of one who, momently by error's host assailed, stands strong as truth, in greaves of granite mailed, and tranquil fronted, listening over all the tumult. Here's the angels say, Well done! 1854. Burns on receiving a sprig of heather and blossom. No more these simple flowers belong to Scottish maid and lover. Sown in the common soil of song, they bloom the wide world over. In smiles and tears, in sun and showers, the minstrel and the heather, the deathless singer and the flowers he sang of live together. Wild heather bells and Robert Burns the moorland flower and peasant. How, at their mention, memory turns her pages old and pleasant. The gray sky wears again its gold and purple of adorning, and manhood's noonday shadows hold the dews of boyhood's morning. The dews that wash the dust and soil from off the wings of pleasure, the sky, that fleck the ground of toil with golden threads of leisure. I call to mind the summer day, the early harvest mowing, the sky with sun and clouds at play, and flowers with breezes blowing. I hear the blackbird in the corn, the locust in the hang, and like the fabled hunter's horn, old tunes my heart is playing. How off that day, with fond delay, I sought the maple's shadow, and sang with burns the hours away, forgetful of the meadow. Bees hummed, birds twittered, Overhead I heard the squirrels leaping, the good dog listened while I read, and wagged his tail in keeping. I watched him while in sportive mood I read.
The TWA Dogs Story And half believed he understood the poet's allegory. Sweet day, sweet songs. The golden hours grew brighter for that singing, From brook and bird and meadow flowers a dearer welcome bringing. New light on home seen nature beamed, New glory over woman, And daily life and duty seemed no longer poor and common. I woke to find the simple truth of fact and feeling better than all the dreams that held my youth a still repining debtor. That nature gives her handmaid, art, the themes of sweet discoursing, the tender idols of the heart in every tongue rehearsing. Why dream of lands of gold and pearl, of loving knight and lady, when farmer boy and barefoot girl were wandering there already? I saw through all familiar things the romance underlying, the joys and griefs that plumed the wings of fancy skyward flying. I saw the same blithe day return, the same sweet fall of even, that rose on wooded Craigieburn, and sank on crystal Devon. I matched with Scotland's heathery hills the sweet briar and the clover, with air and dune, my native rills, their wood hymns chanting over. O'er rank and pomp, as he had seen, I saw the man uprising, no longer common or unclean, the child of God's baptizing. With clearer eyes I saw the worth of life among the lowly. The Bible at his cotter's hearth had made my own more holy. And if at times an evil strain, to lawless love appealing, broke in upon the sweet refrain of pure and healthful feeling, it died upon the eye and ear, no inward answer gaining, no heart had I to see or hear the discord and the staining. Let those who never erred forget his worth, in vain bewailings, sweet soul of song. I own my debt uncancelled by his failings. Lament who of the ribald line which tells his lapse from duty, how kissed the maddening lips of wine or wanton ones of beauty. But think, while falls that shade between the erring one and heaven, that he who loved like Magdalene, like her may be forgiven. Not his the song whose thunderous chime eternal echoes render, the mournful Tuscan's haunted rhyme, and Milton's starry splendor. But who his human heart has laid to nature's bosom nearer? Who sweet and toil like him, or paid to love a tribute dearer? Through all his tuneful art, how strong the human feeling gushes the very moonlight of his song is warm with smiles and blushes. Give lettered pomp to teeth of time, so Bonnie Dune, but Tari, blot out the epic stately rhyme, but spare his Highland Mary. 1854. To George B. Cheever. So spake Isaiah's, so, in words of flame, to Koa's prophet herdsmen smoke with blame the traffickers and men and put to shame, all earth and heaven before, the sacerdotal robbers of the poor. All the dread scripture lives for thee again, to smite like lightning on the hands profane lifted to bless the slave whip and the chain. Once more the old Hebrew tongue bends with the shafts of God about new strung. Take up the mantle which the prophets wore, worn with their warnings, show the Christ once more bound, scourged, and crucified in his blameless poor and shake above our land the unquenched bolts that blazed in Hosea's hand. Not vainly shalt thou cast upon our years the solemn burdens of the Orient seers, and smite with truth a guilty nation's ears. Mightier was Luther's word than Seckingen's mailed arm or Hutton's sword. 1858. To James T. Fields on a blank leaf of. Poems printed, not published. Well thought. Who would not rather hear the songs to love and friendship sung than those which move the stranger's tongue and feed his unselected ear? Our social joys are more than fame. Life withers in the public look. Why mount the pillory of a book or barter comfort for a name? Who in a house of glass would dwell 
with curious eyes at every pane, to ring him in and out again, who wants the public crier's bell, to see the angel in one's way, who wants to play the ass's part, bear on his back the wizard art, and in his service speak or bray, and who his manly locks would shave, and quench the eyes of common sense, to share the noisy recompense that mocked the shorn and blinded slave. The heart has needs beyond the head, and starving in the plenitude of strange gifts, craves its common food, our human nature's daily bread. We are but men, no gods are we, to sit in mid-heaven, cold and bleak, each separate, on his painful peak, thin-cloaked in self-complacency. Better his lot whose axe is swung in Wardbeg woods, or that poor girl's who by the hymn her spindle whirls and sings the songs that Luther sung, than his who, old and cold and vain, at Weimar sat a demigod, and bowed with Joe's imperial nod his votaries in and out again. Ply vanity, thy winged feet. Ambition, H-E-W thy rocky stare. Who envies him who feeds on air the icy splendor of his seat. I see your Alps, above me, cut the dark, cold sky, and dim and lone I see ye sitting, stone on stone, with human senses dulled and shut. I could not reach you, if I would, nor sit among your cloudy shapes, and spare the fable of the grapes and fox, I would not if I could. Keep to your lofty pedestals. The safer plane below I choose who never wins can rarely lose, who never climbs as rarely falls. Let such as love the eagle's scream divide with him his home of ice for me shall gentler notes suffice, the valley song of bird and stream. The pastoral bleat, the drone of bees, the flail beat chiming far away, the cattle at shut of day, the voice of God in leaf and breeze. Then lend thy hand, my wiser friend, and help me to the valleys below, in truth, I have not far to go, where sweet with flowers the fields extend. 1858. The Memory of Burns. Read at the Boston celebration of the hundredth anniversary of the birth of Robert Burns, 25th First M.O., 1859. In my absence these lines were read by Ralph Waldo Emerson. How sweetly come the holy psalms from saints and martyrs down, the waving of triumphal palms above the thorny crown the choral praise, the chanted prayers from harps by angels strung, the hunted Cameron's mountain airs, the hymns that Luther sung. Yet, jarring not the heavenly notes, the sounds of earth are heard, as through the open minster floats the song of breeze and bird not less the wonder of the sky that daisies bloom below. The brook sings on, though loud and high the cloudy organs blow. And if the tender ear be jarred that, haply, hears by turns the saintly harp of Olney's bard, the pastoral pipe of Burns, no discord mars his perfect plan who gave them both a tongue. For he who sings the love of man the love of God hath sung. Today be every fault forgiven of him in whom we joy we take, with thanks, the gold of heaven and leave the earth's alloy. Be ours his music as of spring, his sweetness as of flowers, the songs the bard himself might sing in holier ears than ours. Sweet airs of love and home, the hum of household melodies, come singing, as the robins come to sing in dooryard trees. And, heart to heart, two nations lean, no rivalries to twine, but blending in eternal green the holly and the pine. In remembrance of Joseph Sturge. In the fair land o'erwatched by Ischia's mountains, across the charmed bay whose blue waves keep with Capri's silver fountains perpetual holiday. A king lies dead, his wafer duly eaten his gold-bought masses given, and Rome's great altar smokes with gums to sweeten her foulest gift to heaven. 
and while all Naples thrills with mute thanksgiving, the court of England's queen for the dead monster so abhorred while living in mourning garb is seen. With a true sorrow God rebukes that feigning, by lone edge Baston's side stands a great city in the sky's sad raining, bareheaded and wet-eyed. Silent for once the restless hive of labor, save the low funeral tread, or voice of craftsman whispering to his neighbor the good deeds of the dead. For him no minster's chant of the immortals rose from the lips of sin, no mitred priest swung back the heavenly portals to let the white soul in. But age and sickness framed their tearful faces in the low hovel's door, and prayers went up from all the dark by-places and ghettos of the poor. The pallid twala and the negro chattel, the vagrant of the street, the human dice wherewith in games of battle the lords of earth compete. Touched with a grief that needs no outward draping, all swelled the long lament of grateful hearts, instead of marble, shaping his viewless monument. For never yet, with ritual pomp and splendor, in the long heretofore, a heart more loyal, warm, and true, and tender, has England's turf closed o'er. And if there fell from out her grand old steeples no crash of brazen wail, the murmurous woe of kindreds, tongues, and peoples swept in on every gale. It came from Holstein's birchen-belted meadows, and from the tropic calms of Indian islands in the sunlit shadows of occidental palms. From the locked roadsteads of the Bothnii peasants, and harbors of the Finn, where war's worn victims saw his gentle presence come sailing, Christ-like, in. To seek the lost, to build the old waste places, to link the hostile shores of severing seas, and sell with England's daisies the moss of Finland's moors. Thanks for the good man's beautiful example, who in the vilest saw some sacred crypt or altar of a temple still vocal with God's law, and heard with tender ear the spirit sighing as from its prison cell, praying for pity, like the mournful crying of Jonah out of hell. Not his the golden pens or lips persuasion, but a fine sense of right, and truth's directness, meeting each occasion straight as a line of light. His faith and works, like streams that intermingle, in the same channel ran the crystal clearness of an eye kept single shamed all the frauds of man. The very gentlest of all human natures he joined to courage strong, and love outreaching unto all God's creatures with sturdy hate of wrong. Tender as woman, manliness and meekness in him were so allied that they who judged him by his strength or weakness saw but a single side. Men failed, betrayed him, but his zeal seemed nourished by failure and by fall. Still a large faith in humankind he cherished, and in God's love for all. And now he rests. His greatness and his sweetness no more shall seem at strife, and death has molded into calm completeness the statue of his life. Where the dews glisten and the songbirds warble, his dust to dust is laid, in nature's keeping, with no pomp of marble to shame his modest shade. The forges glow, the hammers all are ringing, beneath its smoky veil, hard by, the city of his love is swinging its clamorous iron flail. But round his grave are quietude and beauty, and the sweet heaven above, the fitting symbols of a life of duty transfigured into love. 1859. Brown of Osawatomie. John Brown of Osawatomie spake on his dying day. I will not have to shrive my soul a priest in slavery's pay, but let some poor slave mother whom I have striven to free, with her children, from the gallows stair put up a prayer for me. John Brown of Osawatomie, they led him out to die, and lo, a poor slave mother with her little child pressed nigh. Then the bold, blue eye grew tender, and the old harsh face grew mild, 
as he stooped between the jeering ranks and kissed the negro's child. The shadows of his stormy life that moment fell apart, and they who blamed the bloody hand forgave the loving heart. That kiss from all its guilty means redeemed the good intent, and round the grisly fighter's hair the martyr's aureole bent. Perish with him the folly that seeks through evil good long live the generous purpose unstained with human blood. Not the raid of midnight terror, but the thought which underlies, not the borderer's pride of daring, but the Christian's sacrifice. Nevermore may yon blue ridges the northern rifle here, nor see the light of blazing homes flash on the negro's spear. But let the free-winged angel truth their guarded passes scale, to teach that right is more than might, and justice more than nail. So vainly shall Virginia set her battle in array, in vain her trampling squadrons knead the winter snow with clay. She may strike the pouncing eagle, but she dares not harm the dove, and every gate she bars to hate shall open wide to love. 1859. Naples inscribed to Robert C. Waterston of Boston. Helen Waterston died at Naples in her eighteenth year, and lies buried in the Protestant cemetery there. The stone over her grave bears the lines. Fold her, O Father, in thine arms, and let her henceforth be a messenger of love between our human hearts and thee. I give thee joy. I know to thee the dearest spot on earth must be where sleeps thy loved one by the summer sea. Where, near her sweetest poet's tomb, the land of Virgil gave thee room to lay thy flower with her perpetual bloom. I know that when the sky shut down behind thee on the gleaming town, on Baie's baths and Pasilippo's crown, and through thy tears, the mocking day burned Ischia's mountain lines away, and Capri melted in its sunny bay. Through thy great farewell sorrow shot the sharp pang of a bitter thought that slaves must tread around that holy spot. Thou knewest not the land was blessed in giving thy beloved rest, holding the fond hope closer to her breast. That every sweet and saintly grave was freedom's prophecy, and gave the pledge of heaven to sanctify and save. That pledge is answered. To thy ear the unchained city sends its cheer, and tuned to joy, the muffled bells of fear. Ring victor in. The land sits free and happy by the summer sea, and bourbon Naples now is Italy. She smiles above her broken chain the languid smile that follows pain, stretching her cramped limbs to the sun again. Oh, joy for all, who hear her call from grey Camaldoli's convent wall and Elmo's towers to freedom's carnival. A new life breathes among her vines and olives, like the breath of pines blown downward from the breezy Apennines. Lean, O my friend, to meet that breath, rejoice as one who witnesseth beauty from ashes rise, and life from death. Thy sorrow shall no more be pain, its tears shall fall in sunlit rain, riding the grave with flowers. Arisen again! 1860. A memorial. Moses Austin Cartland, a dear friend and relation, who led a faithful life as a teacher and died in the summer of 1863. Oh, thicker, deeper, darker growing, the solemn vista to the tomb must know henceforth another shadow and give another cypress room. In love surpassing that of brothers, we walked, O oh friend, from childhood's day, and looking back o'er fifty summers, our footprints track a common way. One in our faith, and one our longing to make the world within our reach somewhat the better for our living, and gladder for our human speech. Thou heardst with me the far-off voices, the old beguiling song of fame, but life to thee was warm and present, and love was better than a name. To homely joys and loves and friendships thy genial nature fondly clung, 
and so the shadow on the dial ran back and left thee always young. And who could blame the generous weakness which, only to thyself unjust, so overprised the worth of others, and dwarfed thy own with self-distrust? All hearts grew warmer in the presence of one who, seeking not his own, gave freely for the love of giving, nor reaped for self the harvest sown. Thy greeting smile was pledge and prelude of generous deeds and kindly words. In thy large heart were fair guest chambers, open to sunrise and the birds. The task was thine to mold and fashion life's plastic newness into grace to make the boyish heart heroic, and light with thought the maiden's face. O'er all the land, in town and prairie, with bended heads of mourning, stand the living forms that owe their beauty and fitness to thy shaping hand. Thy call has come in ripened manhood, the noonday calm of heart and mind, while I, who dreamed of thy remaining to mourn me, linger still behind. Live on to own, with self-upbraiding, a debt of love still due from me, the vain remembrance of occasions, forever lost, of serving thee. It was not mine among thy kindred to join the silent funeral prayers, but all that long sad day of summer my tears of mourning dropped with theirs. All day the sea waves sobbed with sorrow, the birds forgot their merry trills all day I heard the pines lamenting with thine upon thy homestead hills. Green be those hillside pines forever, and green the meadowy lowlands be, and green the old memorial beeches, named Carven in the woods of Lee. Still let them greet thy life companions who thither turn their pilgrim feet, in every mossy line recalling a tender memory sadly sweet. O friend, if thought and sense avail not to know thee henceforth as thou art, that all is well with thee forever I trust the instincts of my heart. Thine be the quiet habitations, thine the green pastures, blossom sown, and smiles of saintly recognition, as sweet and tender as thy own. Thou comest not from the hush and shadow to meet us, but to thee we come, with thee we never can be strangers, and where thou art must still be home. 1863. Bryant on his birthday. Mr. Bryant's seventieth birthday, November 3, 1864, was celebrated by a festival to which these verses were sent. We praise not now the poet's art, the rounded beauty of his song, who weighs him from his life apart must do his nobler nature wrong. Not for the eye, familiar grown with charms to common sight denied, the marvelous gift he shares alone with him who walked on Rydal's side. Not for wrapped him nor woodland lay, too grave for smiles, too sweet for tears, we speak his praise who wears today the glory of his seventy years. When peace brings freedom in her train, let happy lips his songs rehearse. His life is now his noblest strain, his manhood better than his verse. Thank God. His hand on nature's keys its cunning keeps at life's full span. But dimmed and dwarfed, in times like these, the poet seems beside the man. So be it. Let the garlands die, the singer's wreath, the painter's mead. Let our names perish, if thereby our country may be saved and freed. 1864. Thomas Starr King. Published originally as a prelude to the posthumous volume of selections edited by Richard Frothingham. The great work laid upon his two score years is done, and well done. If we drop our tears, who loved him as few men were ever loved, we mourn no blighted hope nor broken plan with him whose life stands rounded and approved in the full growth and stature of a man. Mingle, O bells, along the western slope, with your deep toll a sound of faith and hope. Wave cheerily still, O banner, halfway down, from thousand-masted bay and steepled town. 
Let the strong organ with its loftiest swell lift the proud sorrow of the land, and tell that the brave sower saw his ripened grain. O east and west, O morn and sunset twain no more forever, has he lived in vain who, priest of freedom, made ye one, and told your bridal service from his lips of gold? 1864. Lines on a flyleaf. I need not ask thee, for my sake, to read a book which well may make its way by native force of wit without my manual sign to it. Its piquant writer needs from me no gravely masculine guarantee, and well might laugh her merriest laugh at broken spears in her behalf. Yet, spite of all the critics tell, I frankly own I like her well. It may be that she wields a pen too sharply nibbed for thin-skinned men, that her keen arrows search and try the armor joints of dignity, and though alone for error meant, sing through the air irreverent. I blame her not, the young athlete who plants her woman's tiny feet, and dares the chances of debate where bearded men might hesitate, who, deeply earnest, seeing well the ludicrous and laughable, mingling in eloquent excess her anger and her tenderness, and chiding with a half-caress strives, less for her own sex than ours, with principalities and powers, and points us upward to the clear sunned heights of her new atmosphere. Heaven mend her faults. I will not pause to weigh and doubt and peck at flaws, or waste my pity when some fool provokes her measureless ridicule. Strong-minded is she? Better so than dullness set for sale or show, a household folly, capped and belled in fashion's dance of puppets held, or poor pretense of womanhood, whose formal, flavorless platitude is warranted from all offense of robust meaning's violence. Give me the wine of thought whose head sparkles along the page I read, electric words in which I find the tonic of the northwest wind, the wisdom which itself allies to sweet and pure humanities, where scorn of meanness, hate of wrong, are underlaid by love as strong, the genial play of mirth that lights grave themes of thought, as when, on nights of summertime, the harmless blaze of thunderless heat lightning plays, and tree and hilltop resting dim and doubtful on the sky's vague rim. Touched by that soft and lambent gleam, start sharply outlined from their dream. Talk not to me of woman's sphere, nor point with scripture text a sneer, nor wrong the manliest saint of all by doubt, if he were here, that Paul would own the heroines who have lent grace to truth's stern arbitrament, foregone the praise to woman's sweet, and cast their crowns at duty's feet, like her, who by her strong appeal made fashion weep and mammon feel, who, earliest summoned to withstand the color madness of the land, counted her lifelong losses gain, and made her own her sisters. Pain, or her who, in her greenwood shade, heard the sharp call that freedom made, and answering, struck from Sappho's lyre of love the Turtman Carmen's fire or that young girl, Domremy's maid revived a nobler cause to aid, shaking from warning fingertips the doom of her apocalypse. Or her, who worldwide entrance gave to the log cabin of the slave, made all his want and sorrow known, and all earth's languages his own. 1866. George L. Stearns. No man rendered greater service to the cause of freedom than Major Stearns in the great struggle between invading slaveholders and the free settlers of Kansas. He has done the work of a true man, crown him, honor him, love him. Weep over him, tears of woman, stoop manliest brows above him. O dusky mothers and daughters, vigils of mourning keep for him. Up in the mountains and down by the waters, lift up your voices and weep for him. For the warmest of hearts is frozen, the freest of hands is still, and the gap in our picked and chosen the long years may not fill. No duty could overtask him, 
no need his will outrun, or ever our lips could ask him, his hands the work had done. He forgot his own soul for others, himself to his neighbor lending. He found the Lord in his suffering brothers, and not in the clouds descending. So the bed was sweet to die on, whence he saw the doors wide swung against whose bolted iron the strength of his life was flung. And he saw ere his eye was darkened the sheaves of the harvest bringing, and knew while his ear yet hearkened the voice of the reapers singing. Ah, well, the world is discreet, there are plenty to pause and wait, but here was a man who set his feet sometimes in advance of fate, plucked off the old bark when the inner was slow to renew it, and put to the Lord's work the sinner when saints failed to do it. Never rode to the wrongs redressing a worthier paladin. Shall he not hear the blessing? Good and faithful, enter in. 1867. Garibaldi. In trance and dream of old, God's prophets saw the casting down of thrones. Thou, watching lone the hot Sardinian coastline, hazy-hilled, where, fringing round Caprera's rocky zone with foam, the slow waves gather and withdraw, beholds the vision of the seer fulfilled, and hears the sea winds burdened with the sound of falling chains, as, one by one, unbound, the nations lift their right hands up and swear their oath of freedom. From the chalk-white wall of England, from the black Carpathian range, along the Danube and the Tice, through all the passes of the Spanish Pyrenees, and from the Seine's thronged banks, a murmur strange and glad floats to the o'er thy summer seas on the salt wind that stirs thy whitening hair, the song of freedom's bloodless victories. Rejoice, O Garibaldi! Though thy sword failed at Rome's gates, and blood seemed vainly poured where, in Christ's name, the crowned infidel of France wrought murder with the arms of hell on that sad mountain slope whose ghostly dead, unmindful of the gray exorcist's ban, walk, unappeased, the chambered Vatican, and draw the curtains of Napoleon's bed. God's providence is not blind, but full of eyes, it searches all the refuges of lies, and in his time and way, the accursed things before whose evil feet that battle gauge has clashed defiance from hot youth to age shall perish. All men shall be priests and kings, one royal brotherhood, one church made free by love, which is the law of liberty 1869. To Lydia Maria Child, on reading her poem in The Standard, Mrs. Child wrote her lines, beginning, Again the trees are clothed in vernal green. May 24, 1859 on the first anniversary of Ellis Gray Loring's death, but did not publish them for some years afterward, when I first read them, or I could not have made the reference which I did to the extinction of slavery. The sweet spring day is glad with music, but through it sounds a sadder strain. The worthiest of our narrowing circle sings Loring's dirges o'er again. O woman greatly loved, I join thee in tender memories of our friend, with thee across the awful spaces the greeting of a soul I send. What cheer hath he? How is it with him? Where lingers he this weary while? Over what pleasant fields of heaven dawns the sweet sunrise of his smile? Does he not know our feet are treading the earth hard down on slavery's grave? That, in our crowning exultations, we miss the charm his presence gave? Why on this spring air comes no whisper from him to tell us all is well? Why to our flower time comes no token of lily and of asphodel? I feel the unutterable longing— Thy hunger of the heart is mine. I reach and grope for hands in darkness. My ear grows sharp for voice or sign. Still on the lips of all we question the finger of God's silence lies. Will the lost hands in ours be folded? 
Will the shut eyelids ever rise? O oh, friend, no proof beyond this yearning, this outreach of our hearts, we need. God will not mock the hope he giveth, no love he prompts shall vainly plead. Then let us stretch our hands in darkness, and call our loved ones o'er and o'er. Some day their arms shall close about us, and the old voices speak once more. No dreary splendors wait our coming where rapt ghost sits from ghost apart. Homeward we go to heaven's thanksgiving, the harvest gathering of the heart. 1870. The Singer. This poem was written on the death of Alice Carey. Her sister Phoebe, heartbroken by her loss, followed soon after. Noble and richly gifted, lovely in person and character, they left behind them only friends and admirers. Years since, but names to me before, two sisters sought at Eve my door, two songbirds wandering from their nest, a gray old farmhouse in the west. How fresh of life the younger one, half smiles, half tears, like rain and sun. Her gravest mood could scarce displace the dimples of her nut-brown face. What sparkled on her lips not less for quick and tremulous tenderness, and following close her merriest glance, dreamed through her eyes the heart's romance. Timid and still, the elder had even then a smile too sweetly sad, the crown of pain that all must wear too early pressed her midnight hair. Yet ere the summer eve grew long, her modest lips were sweet with song. A memory haunted all her words of clover fields and singing birds. Her dark, dilating eyes expressed the broad horizons of the west. Her speech dropped prairie flowers. The gold of harvest wheat about her rolled. Fordoomed to song she seemed to me I queried not with destiny I knew the trial and the need, yet, all the more, I said, God speed? What could I other than I did? Could I a singing bird forbid? Deny the wind-stirred leaf? Rebuke the music of the forest brook? She went with morning from my door, but left me richer than before. Thenceforth I knew her voice of cheer, the welcome of her partial ear. Years passed, through all the land her name a pleasant household word became all felt behind the singer stood a sweet and gracious womanhood. Her life was earnest work, not play. Her tired feet climbed a weary way, and even through her lightest strain we heard an undertone of pain. Unseen of her her fair fame grew, the good she did she rarely knew. Unguessed of her in life the love that rained its tears her grave above. When last I saw her, full of peace, she waited for her great release, and that old friend so sage and bland, our later Franklin, held her hand. For all that patriot bosom stirs had moved that woman's heart of hers, and men who toiled in storm and sun found her their meet companion. Our converse, from her suffering bed to healthful themes of life she led the outdoor world of bud and bloom and light and sweetness filled her room. Yet evermore an underthought of loss to come within us wrought, and all the while we felt the strain of the strong will that conquered pain. God giveth quietness at last. The common way that all have passed she went, with mortal yearnings fond, to fuller life and love beyond. Fold the rapt soul in your embrace, my dear ones, Give the singer place to you, to her, I know not where, I lift the silence of a prayer. For only thus our own we find, the gone before, the left behind, all mortal voices died between, the unheard reaches the unseen. Again the blackbirds sing, the streams wake, laughing, from their winter dreams, and tremble in the April showers the tassels of the maple flowers. But not for her has spring renewed the sweet surprises of the wood and bird and flower are lost to her who was their best interpreter. What to shut eyes has God revealed? 
What here the ears that death has sealed? What undreamed beauty passing show requites the loss of all we know? O silent land, to which we move, enough if there alone be love, and mortal need can ne'er outgrow what it is waiting to bestow. O white soul, from that far-off shore float some sweet song the waters o'er. Our faith confirm, our fears dispel, with the old voice we loved so well. 1871. How Mary Grew. These lines were in answer to an invitation to hear a lecture of Mary Grew, of Philadelphia, before the Boston Radical Club. The reference in the last stanza is to an essay on Sappho by T. W. Higginson, read at the club the preceding month. With wisdom far beyond her years, and graver than her wondering peers, so strong, so mild, combining still the tender heart and queenly will, to conscience and to duty true, so, up from childhood, Mary grew. Then in her gracious womanhood she gave her days to doing good. She dared the scornful laugh of men, the hounding mob, the slanderous pen. She did the work she found to do, a Christian heroine, Mary grew. The freed slave thanks her. Blessing comes to her from women's weary homes. The wronged and erring find in her their censor mild and comforter. The world were safe if but a few could grow in grace as Mary grew. So, New Year's Eve, I sit and say, by this low wood fire, ashen gray, just wishing, as the night shuts down, that I could hear in Boston town, in pleasant Chestnut Avenue, from her own lips, how Mary grew, and hear her graceful hostess tell the silver-voiced oracle who lately through her parlors spoke as through Dodona's sacred oak, a wiser truth than any told by Sappho's lips of ruddy gold, the way to make the world anew, is just to grow, as Mary grew 1871. Sumner. I am not one who has disgraced beauty of sentiment by deformity of conduct, or the maxims of a freeman by the actions of a slave, but by the grace of God I have kept my life unsullied. Milton's Defense of the People of England. O Mother State, the winds of March blew chill o'er Auburn's field of God, where, slow, beneath a leaden arch of sky, thy morning children trod. And now, with all thy woods in leaf, thy fields in flower, beside thy dead thou sittest, in thy robes of grief, a Rachel yet uncomforted. And once again the organ swells, once more the flag is halfway hung, and yet again the mournful bells in all thy steeple-towers are rung. And I, obedient to thy will, have come a simple wreath to lay, superfluous, on a grave that still is sweet with all the flowers of May. I take with awe the task assigned, it may be that my friend might miss, in his new sphere of heart and mind, some token from my band in this. By many a tender memory moved, along the past my thought I send, the record of the cause he loved is the best record of its friend. No trumpet sounded in his ear, he saw not Sinai's cloud and flame, but never yet to Hebrew seer a clearer voice of duty came. God said, Break thou these yokes, undo these heavy burdens. I ordain a work to last thy whole life through, a ministry of strife and pain. Forgo thy dreams of lettered ease, put thou the scholar's promise by, the rights of man are more than these. He heard and answered, Here am I. He set his face against the blast his feet against the flinty shard, till the hard service grew, at last, its own exceeding great reward. Lifted like Saul's above the crowd, upon his kingly forehead fell the first sharp bolt of slavery's cloud, launched at the truth he urged so well. Ah! Never yet, at rack or stake, was sore a loss made freedom's gain, than his, 
who suffered for her sake the beak-torn titan's lingering pain. The fixed star of his faith, through all loss, doubt, and peril, shone the same, as through a night of storm, some tall, strong lighthouse lifts its steady flame. Beyond the dust and smoke he saw the sheaves of freedom's large increase, the holy fanes of equal law, the new Jerusalem of peace. The weak might fear, the worldling mock, the faint and blind of heart regret, all knew at last th eternal rock on which his forward feet were set. The subtlest scheme of compromise was folly to his purpose bold, the strongest mesh of party lies weak to the simplest truth he told. One language held his heart and lip, straight onward to his goal he trod, and proved the highest statesmanship obedience to the voice of God. No wail was in his voice, none heard, when treason storm cloud blackest grew, the weakness of a doubtful word, his duty, and the end he knew. The first to smite, the first to spare, when once the hostile ensigns fell, he stretched out hands of generous care to lift the foe he fought so well. For there was nothing base or small or craven in his soul's broad plan. Forgiving all things personal, he hated only wrong to man. The old traditions of his state, the memories of her great and good, took from his life a fresher date, and in himself embodied stood. How felt the greed of gold and place, the venal crew that schemed and planned, the fine scorn of that haughty face, the spurning of that bribeless hand. If then Rome's tribune statelier he wore his senatorial robe, his lofty port was all for her, the one dear spot on all the globe. If to the master's plea he gave the vast contempt his manhood felt, he saw a brother in the slave, with man as equal man he dealt. Proud was he? If his presence kept its grandeur where sore he trod, as if from Plutarch's gallery stepped the hero and the demigod. None failed, at least, to reach his ear, nor want nor woe appealed in vain. The homesick soldier knew his cheer, and blessed him from his ward of pain. Safely his dearest friends may own the slight defects he never hid, the surface blemish in the stone of the tall, stately pyramid. Suffice it that he never brought his conscience to the public mart, but lived himself the truth he taught, white-souled, clean-handed, pure of heart. What if he felt the natural pride of power and noble use? too true with thin humilities to hide the work he did, the lore he knew. Was he not just? Was any wrong by that assured self-estimate? He took but what to him belonged, unenvious of another's state. Well might he heed the words he spake, and skin with care the written page through which he still shall warm and wake the hearts of men from age to age. Ah! Who shall blame him now because he solaced thus his hours of pain? Should not the o'erworn thresher pause? and hold to light his golden grain? No sense of humor dropped its oil on the hard ways his purpose went. Small play of fancy lightened toil. He spake alone the thing he meant. He loved his books, the art that hints a beauty veiled behind its own, the graver's line, the pencil's tints, the chisel's shape evoked from stone. He cherished, void of selfish ends, the social courtesies that bless and sweeten life, and loved his friends with most unworldly tenderness. But still his tired eyes rarely learned the glad relief by nature brought. Her mountain ranges never turned his current of persistent thought. The sea rolled chorus to his speech three bank-like latium's tall trireme, with laboring oars. The grove and beach were forum and the academe. The sensuous joy from all things fair his strenuous bent of soul repressed, and left from youth to silvered hair few hours for pleasure, none for rest. For all his life was poor without, O nature! 
make the last amends train all thy flowers his grave about, and make thy singing birds his friends. Revive again, thou summer rain, the broken turf upon his bed breathe, summer wind, thy tenderest strain of low, sweet music overhead. With calm and beauty symbolize the peace which follows long annoy, and lend our earth-bent, morning eyes, some hint of his diviner joy. For safe with right and truth he is, as God lives he must live alway. There is no end for souls like his, no night for children of the day. Nor can nor poor solicitudes made weak his life's great argument. Small leisure his for frames and moods who followed duty where she went. The broad, fair fields of God he saw beyond the bigot's narrow bound. The truths he molded into law in Christ's beatitudes he found. His statecraft was the golden rule, his right of vote a sacred trust. Clear, over threat and ridicule, all heard his challenge. Is it just? And when the hour supreme had come, not for himself a thought he gave. In that last pang of martyrdom, his care was for the half-freed slave. Not vainly dusky hands up or, in prayer, the passing soul to heaven whose mercy to his suffering poor was service to the master given. Long shall the good state's annals tell, her children's children long be taught, how, praised or blamed, he guarded well the trust he either shunned nor sought. If for one moment turn thy face, O mother, from thy son, not long he waited calmly in his place the sure remorse which follows wrong. Forgiven be the state he loved the one brief lapse, the single blot. Forgotten be the stain removed, her righted record shows it not. The lifted sword above her shield with jealous care shall guard his fame. The pine tree on her ancient field to all the winds shall speak his name. The marble image of her son her loving hands shall yearly crown, and from her pictured pantheon his grand, majestic face look down. O state so passing rich before, who now shall doubt thy highest claim? The world that counts thy jewels o'er shall longest pause at Sumner's name. 1874. There's. I. Fate summoned, in grey-bearded age, to act a history stranger than his written fact, him who portrayed the splendor and the gloom of that great hour when throne and altar fell with long death-groan which still is audible. He, when around the walls of Paris rung the Prussian bugle like the blast of doom, and every ill which follows unblessed war maddened all France from Finisterre to Var, the weight of fourscore from his shoulders flung, and guided freedom in the path he saw lead out of chaos into light and law, peace, not imperial, but republican, and order pledged to all the rights of man. 2. Death called him from a need as imminent as that from which the silent William went when powers of evil, like the smiting seas on Holland's dikes, assailed her liberties. Sadly, while yet in doubtful balance hung the wheel and woe of France, the bells were rung for her lost leader. Paralyzed of will, above his beer the hearts of men stood still. Then, as if set to his dead lips, the horn of Roland wound once more to rouse and warn, the old voice filled the air. His last brave word not vainly France to all her boundaries stirred. Strong as in life, he still for freedom wrought, as the dead Cid at Red Toloso fought. 1877. Fitzgreen Halleck. At the unveiling of his statue. Among their graven shapes to whom thy civic wreaths belong, O city of his love, make room for one whose gift was song. Not his the soldier's sword to wield, nor his the helm of state, nor glory of the stricken field nor triumph of debate. In common ways, with common men, he served his race and time as well as if his clerkly pen had never danced to rhyme. 
if, in the thronged and noisy mart, the muses found their son, could any say his tuneful art a duty left undone? He toiled and sang, and year by year men found their homes more sweet, and through a tenderer atmosphere looked down the brick-walled street. The Greeks' wild onset Gaul Street knew, the Red King walked Broadway, and Alnwick Castle's roses blew from palisades to bay. Fair city by the sea, upraise his veil with reverent hands, and mingle with thy own the praise and pride of other lands. Let Greece his fiery lyric breathe above her hero urns, and Scotland, with her holly, wreathe the flower he culled for burns. O oh, stately stand thy palace walls, thy tall ships ride the seas, today thy poet's name recalls a prouder thought than these. Not less thy pulse of trade shall beat, nor less thy tall fleets swim, that shaded square and dusty street are classic ground through him. Alive, he loved, like all who sing, the echoes of his song, too late the tardy mead we bring, the praise delayed so long. Too late, alas! Of all who knew the living man, today before his unveiled face, how few make bare their locks of gray. Our lips of praise must soon be dumb, our grateful eyes be dim. O brothers of the days to come, take tender charge of him. New hands the wires of song may sweep, new voices challenge fame. But let no moss of years o'ercreep the lines of Halleck's name. 1877. William Francis Bartlett. Oh, well may Essex sit forlorn beside her sea-blown shore. Her well-beloved, her noblest born, is hers in life no more. No lapse of years can render less her memory's sacred claim. No fountain of forgetfulness can wet the lips of fame. A grief alike to wound and heal, a thought to soothe and pain, the sad, sweet pride that mothers feel to her must still remain. Good men and true she has not lacked, and brave men yet shall be. The perfect flower, the crowning fact, of all her years was he. As Galahad pure, as Merlin sage, what worthier knight was found to grace in Arthur's golden age the fabled table round? A voice, the battle's trumpet note, to welcome and restore. A hand, that all unwilling smote, to heal and build once more. A soul of fire, a tender heart too warm for hate, he knew the generous victor's graceful part to sheathe the sword he drew. When earth, as if on evil dreams, looks back upon her wars, and the white light of Christ outstreams from the red disk of Mars. His fame who led the stormy van of battle well may cease, but never that which crowns the man whose victory was peace. Mourn Essex, on thy sea-blown shore thy beautiful and brave, whose failing hand the olive bore, whose dying lips forgave. Let age lament the youthful chief, and tender eyes be dim. The tears are more of joy than grief that fall for one like him. 1878. Bayard Taylor. Aye. And where now, Bayard, will thy footsteps tend? My sister asked our guest one winter's day. Smiling he answered in the friend's sweet way common to both. Wherever thou shalt send, what wouldst thou have me see for thee? She laughed her dark eyes dancing in the wood-fire's glow. Lofoden Isles, the Kilpies, and the low, unsetting sun on Finmark's fishing craft. All these and more I soon shall see for thee, he answered cheerily, and he kept his pledge on Lapland's snows, the North Cape's windy wedge, and Tromso freezing in its winter sea. He went and came. But no man knows the track of his last journey, and he comes not back. Two, he brought us wonders of the new and old. We shared all climes with him. The Arabs tent to him its storytelling secret lent. And pleased, we listened to the tales he told. 
his task, beguiled with songs that shall endure, in manly, honest thoroughness he wrought. From humble homelays to the heights of thoughts slowly he climbed, but every step was sure. How, with the generous pride that friendship hath, we, who so loved him, saw at last the crown of civic honor on his brows pressed down, rejoiced, and knew not that the gift was death. And now for him, whose praise in deafened ears two nations speak, we answer but with tears. 3. O Vale of Chester! Trod by him so oft, green as thy June turf keep his memory. Let nor wood, nor dell, nor storied stream forget, nor winds that blow round lonely Cedarcroft. Let the home voices greet him in the far, strange land that holds him. Let the messages of love pursue him o'er the chartless seas and unmapped vastness of his unknown star love's language, heard beyond the loud discourse of perishable fame, in every sphere itself interprets. And its utterance here somewhere in God's unfolding universe shall reach our traveler, softening the surprise of his rapt. Gaze on unfamiliar skies. 1879. Our Autocrat. Read at the breakfast given in honor of Dr. Holmes by the publishers of the Atlantic Monthly, December 3, 1879. His laurels fresh from song and lay, romance, art, science, rich in all, and young of heart, how dare we say we keep his seventieth festival? No sense is here of loss or lack, before his sweetness and his light the dial holds its shadow back, the charmed hours delay their flight. His still the keen analysis of men and moods, electric wit, free play of mirth, and tenderness to heal the slightest wound from it. And his the pathos touching all life's sins and sorrows and regrets, its hopes and fears, its final call and rest beneath the violets. His sparkling surface scarce betrays the thoughtful tide beneath it rolled, the wisdom of the latter days, and tender memories of the old. What shapes and fancies, grave or gay, before us at his bidding come the treadmill tramp, the one-horse shay, the dumb despair of Elsie's doom, the tale of Avis and the maid, the plea for lips that cannot speak, the holy kiss that Iris laid on little Boston's pallid cheek. Long may he live to sing for us his sweetest songs at evening time, and, like his chambered nautilus, to holier heights of beauty climb. Though now unnumbered guests surround the table that he rules at will, its autocrat, however crowned, is but our friend and comrade still. The world may keep his honored name, the wealth of all his very powers, a stronger claim has love than fame, and he himself is only ours. Within the gate. L. M. C. I have more fully expressed my admiration and regard for Lydia Maria Child in the biographical introduction which I wrote for the volume of letters, published after her death. We sat together, last May Day, and talked of the dear friends who walked beside us, sharers of the hopes and fears of five and forty years. Since first we met in freedom's hope forlorn, and heard her battle-horn sound through the valleys of the sleeping north, calling her children forth. And youth pressed forward with hope-lighted eyes, and age, with forecast wise of the long strife before the triumph won, girded his armor on. Sadly, as name by name we called the roll, we heard the dead bells toll for the unanswering many, and we knew the living were the few. And we, who waited our own call before the inevitable door, listened and looked, as all have done, to win some token from within. No sign we saw, we heard no voices call, the impenetrable wall cast down its shadow, like an awful doubt, on all who sat without. Of many a hint of life beyond the veil, and many a ghostly tale wherewith the ages span the gulf between the seen and the unseen. 
seeking from omen trance, and dream to gain solace to doubtful pain, and touch, with groping hands, the garment hem of truth sufficing them. We talked, and turning from the sore unrest of an all-baffling quest, we thought of holy lives that from us pass hopeful unto the last. As if they saw beyond the river of death, like him of Nazareth, the many mansions of the eternal days lift up their gates of praise. And hushed to silence by a reverent awe, methought, O friend, I saw in thy true life of word, and work, and thought the proof of all we sought. Did we not witness in the life of the immortal prophecy? And feel, when with thee, that thy footsteps trod an everlasting road? Not for brief days thy generous sympathies, thy scorn of selfish ease, not for the poor prize of an earthly goal thy strong uplift of soul. Then nine was never turned a fonder heart to nature and to art in fair-formed Hellas in her golden prime, thy Philothea's time. Yet, loving beauty, thou couldst pass it by, and for the poor deny thyself, and see thy fresh, sweet, flower of fame wither in blight and blame. Sharing his love who holds in his embrace the lowliest of our race, sure the divine economy must be conservative of thee. For truth must live with truth, self-sacrifice seek out its great allies. Good must find good by gravitation sure, and love with love endure. And so, since thou hast passed within the gate whereby a while I wait, I give blind grief and blinder sense the lie thou hast not lived to die. 1881. In Memory. James T. Fields. As a guest who may not stay long and sad farewells to say glides with smiling face away. Of the sweetness and the zest of thy happy life possessed thou hast left us at thy best. Warm of heart and clear of brain, of thy sunbright spirits wane thou hast spared us all the pain. Now that thou hast gone away, what is left of one to say who was open as the day? What is there to gloss or shun? Save with kindly voices none speak thy name beneath the sun. Safe thou art on every side, friendship nothing finds to hide, love's demand is satisfied. Over manly strength and worth, at thy desk of toil, or hearth, played the lambent light of mirth. Mirth that lit, but never burned, all thy blame to pity turned, hatred thou hadst never learned. Every harsh and vexing thing at thy home fire lost its sting, where thou wast was always spring. And thy perfect trust in good, faith in man and womanhood, chance and change and time, withstood. Small respect for cant and wine, bigots' zeal and hate malign, had that sunny soul of thine. But to thee was duty's claim sacred, and thy lips became reverent with one holy name. Therefore, on thy unknown way, go in God's peace. We who stay but a little while delay. Keep for us, O friend, where'er thou art waiting, all that here made thy earthly presence dear. Something of thy pleasant past on a ground of wonder cast, in the stiller waters glassed. Keep the human heart of thee, let the mortal only be clothed in immortality. And when fall our feet as fell thine upon the asphodel, let thy old smile greet us well. Proving in a world of bliss what we fondly dream in this, love is one with holiness. 1881. Wilson. Read at the Massachusetts Club on the 70th anniversary the birthday of Vice President Wilson, February 16, 1882. The lowliest born of all the land, he wrung from fate's reluctant hand the gifts which happier boyhood claims and tasting on a thankless soil the bitter bread of unpaid toil, he fed his soul with noble aims. And nature, kindly provident, to him the future's promise lent. The powers that shape man's destinies, patience and faith and toil, 
he knew, the close horizon round him grew, broad with great possibilities. By the low hearth fire's fitful blaze he read of old heroic days, the sage's thought, the patriot's speech, unhelped, alone, himself he taught, his school the craft at which he wrought, his lore the book within his, reach. He felt his country's need, he knew the work her children had to do, and when, at last, he heard the call in her behalf to serve and dare, beside his senatorial chair he stood the unquestioned peer of all. Beyond the accident of birth he proved his simple manhood's worth. Ancestral pride and classic grace confessed the large-brained artisan, so clear of sight, so wise in plan and counsel, equal to his place. With glance intuitive he saw through all disguise of form and law, and read men like an open book, fearless and firm, he never quailed nor turned aside for threats, nor failed to do the thing he undertook. How wise, how brave, he was, how well he bore himself, let history tell while waves are flag o'er land and sea, no black thread in its warp or weft. He found dissevered states, he left a grateful nation, strong and free. The poet and the children. Longfellow. With the glory of winter sunshine over his locks of gray, in the old historic mansion he sat on his last birthday. With his books and his pleasant pictures, and his household and his kin, while a sound as of myriads singing from far and near stolen. It came from his own fair city, from the prairie's boundless plain, from the golden gate of sunset, and the cedarn woods of Maine. And his heart grew warm within him, and his moistening eyes grew dim, for he knew that his country's children were singing the songs of him. The lays of his life's glad morning, the psalms of his evening time, whose echoes shall float forever on the winds of every clime. All their beautiful consolations, sent forth like birds of cheer, came flocking back to his windows, and sang in the poet's ear. Grateful, but solemn and tender, the music rose and fell with a joy akin to sadness and a greeting like farewell. With a sense of awe he listened to the voices sweet and young, the last of earth and the first of heaven seemed in the songs they sung. And waiting a little longer for the wonderful change to come, he heard the summoning angel, who calls God's children home. And to him in a holier welcome was the mystical meaning given of the words of the blessed master. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. 1882. A welcome to Lowell. Take our hands, James Russell Lowell. Our hearts are all thy own. Today we bid thee welcome not for ourselves alone. In the long years of thy absence some of us have grown old, and some have passed the portals of the mystery untold. For the hands that cannot clasp thee, for the voices that are dumb, for each and all I bid thee a grateful welcome home. For Cedarcroft's sweet singer to the ninefold muses dear, for the seer the winding concord paused by his door to hear. For him, our guide and Nestor, who the march of song began, the white locks of his ninety years bared to thy winds, Cape N. For him who, to the music her pines and hemlocks played, set the old and tender story of the lorn Acadian maid. For him, whose voice for freedom swayed friend and foe at will, hushed as the tongue of silver, the golden lips are still. For her whose life of duty at scoff and menace smiled, brave as the wife of Roland, yet gentle as a child. And for him the three-hilled city shall hold in memory long, those name is the hint and token of the pleasant fields of song. For the old friends unforgotten, for the young thou hast not known, I speak their heart-warm greeting, come back and take thy own. From England's royal farewells, and honors fitly paid, come back, dear Russell Lowell, 
to Elmwood's waiting shade. Come home with all the garlands that crown of right thy head. I speak for comrades living, I speak for comrades dead. Amesbury, 6th Mo, 1885. An artist of the beautiful. George Fuller. Haunted of beauty, like the marvelous youth who sang St. Agnes Eve. How passing fair her shapes took color in thy homestead air. How on thy canvas even her dreams were truth. Magician, who from commonest elements called up divine ideals, clothed upon by mystic lights soft blending into one womanly grace and childlike innocence. Teacher I thy lesson was not given in vain. Beauty is goodness, ugliness is sin, art's place is sacred, nothing foul therein may crawl or tread with bestial feet profane. If rightly choosing is the painter's test, thy choice, O master, ever was the best. 1885 Mulford, author of The Nation and the Republic of God. Unnoted as the setting of a star he passed, and sect and party scarcely knew when from their midst a sage and seer withdrew to fitter audience, where the great dead are in God's republic of the heart and mind, leaving no purer, nobler soul behind. 1886. To a cape and schooner. Luck to the craft that bears this name of mine. Good fortune follow with her golden spoon the glazed hat and tarry pantaloon, and wheresoe her keel shall cut the brine, cod, hake and haddock quarrel for her line. Shipped with her crew, whatever wind may blow, or tides delay, my wish with her shall go, fishing by proxy. Would that it might show a need her course, in lack of sun and star, where icebergs threaten, and the sharp reefs are, lift the blind fog on Anticosti's lee and Avalon's rock. Make populous the sea round grand men and with eager finny swarms, break the long calms, and charm away the storms. Oak Knoll, 23 3rd M.O., 1886. Samuel J. Tilden. Greystone, August 4, 1886. Once more, O all-adjusting death, the nation's pantheon opens wide. Once more a common sorrow saith a strong, wise man has died. Faults doubtless had he. Had we not our own, to question and asperse the worth we doubted or forgot until beside his hearse? Ambitious, cautious, yet the man to strike down fraud with resolute hand, a patriot, if a partisan, he loved his native land. So let the morning bells be rung, the banner droop its folds halfway, and while the public pen and tongue their fitting tribute pay. Shall we not vow above his beard to set our feet on party lies, and wound no more a living ear with words that death denies? 1886. Personal Poems by John Greenleaf Whittier the Cross. The Hero. Rantoul. William Forster. To Charles Sumner. Burns. To George B. Cheever. To James T. Fields. The Memory of Burns. In Remembrance of Joseph Sturger. Brown of Osawatomie. Naples. A Memorial. Bryant on His Birthday. Thomas Star King. Lines on a Flyleaf. George L. Stearns. Garibaldi. To Lydia Maria Child. The Singer. How Mary Grew. Sumner. Thiers. Fitzgreen Halleck. William Francis Bartlett. Bayard Taylor. Our Autocrat. Within the Gate. In Memory, James T. Fields. Wilson. The Poet and the Children. A Welcome to Lowell. An artist of the beautiful. Mulford. To a cape and schooner. Samuel J. Tilden the Cross. Richard Dillingham, 
a young member of the Society of Friends, died in the Nashville Penitentiary, where he was confined for the act of aiding the escape of fugitive slaves. The cross, if rightly borne, shall be no burden, but support to thee. So, moved of old time for our sake, the holy monk of Kempen spake. Thou brave and true one, upon whom was laid the cross of martyrdom, how didst thou, in thy generous youth, bear witness to this blessed truth? Thy cross of suffering and of shame a staff within thy hands became, in paths where faith alone could see the master's steps supporting thee. Thine was the seed time. God alone beholds the end of what is sown. Beyond our vision, weak and dim, the harvest time is hid with him. Yet, unforgotten where it lies, that seed of generous sacrifice, though seeming on the desert cast, shall rise with bloom and fruit at last. 1852. The Hero. The hero of the incident related in this poem was Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, the well-known philanthropist, who when a young man volunteered his aid in the Greek struggle for independence. Oh, for a knight like Bayard, without reproach or fear, my light glove on his cask of steel, my love not on his spear. Oh, for the white plume floating sad Zutphen's field above, the lion heart in battle, the woman's heart in love. Oh, that man once more were manly, woman's pride, and not her scorn, that once more the pale young mother dared to boast a man is born. But now life's slumbrous current no sun-bowed cascade wakes, no tall, heroic manhood the level dullness breaks. Oh, for a knight like Bayard, without reproach or fear, my light glove on his cask of steel, my love not on his spear. Then I said, my own heart throbbing to the time her proud pulse beat. Life hath its regal natures yet, true, tender, brave, and sweet. Smile not, fair unbeliever. One man, at least I know, who might wear the crest of Bayard or Sydney's plume of snow. Once, when over purple mountains died away the Grecian sun, and the far Selenian ranges paled and darkened, one by one, fell the Turk, a bolt of thunder, cleaving all the quiet sky, and against his sharp steel lightning stood the Sulio but to die. Woe for the weak and halting! The crescent blazed behind a curving line of sabers, like fire before the wind. Last to fly, and first to rally, rode he of whom I speak, when, groaning in his bridal path, sank down a wounded Greek. With the rich Albanian costume wet with many a ghastly stain, gazing on earth and sky as one who might not gaze again. He looked forward to the mountains, back on foes that never spare, then flung him from his saddle, and placed the stranger there. Allah, who, through flashing sabers, through a stormy hail of lead, the good Thessalian charger up the slopes of olives sped. Hot spurred the turbaned riders, he almost felt their breath, where a mountain stream rolled darkly down between the hills and death. One brave and manful struggle, he gained the solid land, and the cover of the mountains, and the carbines of his band. It was very great and noble, said the moist-eyed listener then. But one brave deed makes no hero. Tell me what he since hath been. Still a brave and generous manhood, still an honor without stain, in the prison of the Kaiser, by the barricades of saying. But dream not helm and harness the sign of valor true. Peace hath higher tests of manhood than battle ever knew. Wouldst know him now? Behold him, the cadmus of the blind giving the dumb lip language, the idiot clay a mind. Walking his round of duty serenely day by day, with the strong man's hand of labor and childhood's heart of play. True as the knights of story, Sir Lancelot and his peers, 
brave in his calm endurance, as they in tilt of spears. As waves in stillest waters, as stars in noonday skies, all that wakes to noble action in his noon of calmness lies. Wherever outraged nature asks word or action brave, wherever struggles labor, wherever groans a slave. Wherever rise the peoples, wherever sinks a throne, the throbbing heart of freedom finds an answer in his own. Night of a better era, without reproach or fear. Said I not well that Bayards and Sydneys still are here? 1853. Rantoul. No more fitting inscription could be placed on the tombstone of Robert Rantoul than this. He died at his post in Congress, and his last words were a protest in the name of democracy against the fugitive slave law. One day, along the electric wire his manly word for freedom sped, we came next morn, that tongue of fire said only, He who spake is dead. Dead? While his voice was living yet, in echoes round the pillared dome. Dead? While his blotted page lay wet with themes of state and loves of home. Dead? In that crowning grace of time, that triumph of life's zenith hour. Dead? While we watched his manhood's prime break from the slow bud into flower. Dead? He's so great, and strong, and wise, while the mean thousands yet drew breath. How deepened, through that dread surprise, the mystery and the awe of death. From the high place whereon our votes had borne him, clear, calm, earnest, fell his first words, like the prelude notes of some great anthem yet to swell. We seemed to see our flag unfurled, our champion waiting in his place for the last battle of the world, the Armageddon of the race. Through him we hope to speak the word which wins the freedom of a land, and lift, for human right, the sword which dropped from Hampton's dying hand. For he had sat at Sidney's feet, and walked with Pym and Vane apart, and through the centuries, felt the beat of freedom's march in Cromwell's heart. He knew the paths the worthies held, where England's best and wisest trod and lingering, drank the springs that welled beneath the touch of Milton's rod. No wild enthusiast of the right, self-poised and clear, he showed alway the coolness of his northern night, the right repose of autumn's day. His steps were slow, yet forward still he pressed where others paused or failed. The calm star clone with constant will, the restless meteor flashed and paled. Skilled in its subtlest while, he knew and owned the higher ends of law. Still rose majestic on his view the awful shape the schoolmen saw. Her home the heart of God, her voice the choral harmonies whereby the stars, through all their spheres, rejoice, the rhythmic rule of earth and sky. We saw his great powers misapplied to poor ambitions, yet through all, we saw him take the weaker side, and right the wronged, and free the thrall. Now looking o'er the frozen north, for one like him in word and act, to call her old, free spirit forth, and give her faith the life of fact. To break her party bonds of shame, and labor with the zeal of him to make the democratic name of liberty the synonym. We sweep the land from hill to strand, we seek the strong, the wise, the brave, and, sad of heart, return to stand in silence by a new-made grave. There, where his breezy hills of home look out upon his sail-white seas, the sounds of winds and waters come, and shape themselves to words like these. Why, murmuring, mourn that he, whose power was lent to party over long, heard the still whisper at the hour he set his foot on party wrong? The human life that closed so well no lapse of folly now can stain the lips whence freedom's protest fell no meaner thought can now profane. Mightier than living voice his grave that lofty protest utters o'er, 
Through roaring wind and smiting wave it speaks his hate of wrong once more. Men of the North, your weak regret is wasted here. Arise and pay to freedom and to him your debt by following where he led the way. 1853. William Forster. William Forster, of Norwich, England, died in East Tennessee in the first month, 1854, while engaged in presenting to the governors of the states of this union the address of his religious society on the evils of slavery. He was the relative and coadjutor of the Buxtons, Gurneys, and Fries, and his whole life, extending almost to threescore and ten years, was a poor and beautiful example of Christian benevolence. He had traveled over Europe, and visited most of its sovereigns, to plead against the slave trade and slavery, and had twice before made visits to this country, under impressions of religious duty. He was the father of the right Han, William Edward Forster. He visited my father's house in Haverhill during his first tour in the United States. The years are many since his hand was laid upon my head, too weak and young to understand the serious words he said. Yet often now the good man's look before me seems to swim, as if some inward feeling took the outward guise of him. As if, in passion's heated war, or near temptation's charm, through him the low-voiced monitor forewarned me of the harm. Stranger and Pilgrim From that day of meeting, first and last, wherever duty's pathway lay, his reverent steps have passed. The poor to feed, the lost to seek, to proffer life to death, hope to the erring, to the weak the strength of his own faith. To plead the captive's right, remove the sting of hate from law, and soften in the fire of love the hardened steel of war. He walked the dark world in the mild, still guidance of the light, in tearful tenderness a child, a strong man in the right. From what great perils on his way he found, in prayer, release through what abysmal shadows lay his pathway unto peace. God knoweth, we could only see the tranquil strength he gained, the bondage lost in liberty, the fear and love unfeigned. And I, my youthful fancies grown the habit of the man, whose field of life by angels sown the wilding vines o'erin. Low bowed in silent gratitude, my manhood's heart enjoys that reverence for the pure and good which blessed the dreaming boys. Still shines the light of holy lives like starbeams over doubt. Each sainted memory, Christ-like, drives some dark possession out. O friend! O brother, I not in vain thy life so calm and true, the silver dropping of the rain, the fall of summer dew. How many burdened hearts have prayed their lives like thine might be, but more shall pray henceforth for aid to lay them down like thee. With weary hand yet steadfast will, in old ages and youth, Thy master found thee sowing still the good seed of his truth. As on thy task field closed the day in golden skied decline, his angel met thee on the way, and lent his arm to thine. Thy latest care for man, thy last of earthly thought a prayer, oh, who thy mantle, backward cast, is worthy now to wear? Methinks the mound which marks thy bed might bless our land and save, as rose, of old, to life the dead who touched the prophet's grave 1854. To Charles Sumner if I have seemed more prompt to censure wrong than praise the right, if seldom to thine ear my voice hath mingled with the exultant cheer borne upon all our northern winds along, if I have failed to join the fickle throng in wide-eyed wonder, that thou standest strong in victory, surprised in thee to find Bruham's scathing power with Canning's grace combined, that he, for whom the ninefold muses sang, from their twined arms a giant athlete sprang, barbing the arrows of his native tongue with, the spent shafts Latona's archer flung, to smite the python of our land and time, 
fell as the monster born of Chris's slime, like the blind bard who in Castalian springs tempered the steel that clothed the crest of kings, and on the shrine of England's freedom laid the gifts of Cumb and of Delphi's shade, small need hast thou of words of praise from me. Thou knowest my heart, dear friend, and well canst guess that, even though silent, I have not the less rejoiced to see thy actual life agree with the large future which I shaped for thee, when, years ago, beside the summer sea, white in the moon, we saw the long waves fall baffled and broken from the rocky wall, that, to the menace of the brawling flood, opposed alone its massive quietude, calm as a fate. With not a leaf nor vine nor birch spray trembling in the still moonshine, crowning it. Like God's peace. I sometimes think that night seen by the sea prophetical, for nature speaks in symbols and in signs, and through her pictures human fate divines, that rock, wherefrom we saw the billows sink in murmuring rout, uprising clear and tall in the white light of heaven, the type of one who, momently by error's host assailed, stands strong as truth, in greaves of granite mailed, and tranquil fronted, listening over all the tumult. Here's the angels say, well done. 1854. Burns on receiving a sprig of heather and blossom. No more these simple flowers belong to Scottish maid and lover. Sown in the common soil of song, they bloom the wide world over. In smiles and tears, in sun and showers, the minstrel and the heather, the deathless singer and the flowers he sang of live together. Wild heather bells and Robert Burns the moorland flower and peasant. How, at their mention, memory turns her pages old and pleasant. The gray sky wears again its gold and purple of adorning and manhood's noonday shadows hold the dews of boyhood's morning. The dews that wash the dust and soil from off the wings of pleasure, the sky, that fleck the ground of toil with golden threads of leisure. I call to mind the summer day, the early harvest mowing, the sky with sun and clouds at play, and flowers with breezes blowing. I hear the blackbird in the corn, the locust in the hay, and like the fabled hunter's horn, old tunes my heart is playing. How off that day, with fond delay, I sought the maple's shadow, and sang with burns the hours away, forgetful of the meadow. Bees hummed, birds twittered, overhead I heard the squirrels leaping, the good dog listened while I read, and wagged his tail in keeping. I watched him while in sportive mood I read, the T.W.A. dog's story, and half believed he understood the poet's allegory. Sweet day, sweet songs. The golden hours grew brighter for that singing, from brook and bird and meadow flowers a dearer welcome bringing. New light on home seen nature beamed, new glory over woman, and daily life and duty seemed no longer poor and common. I woke to find the simple truth of fact and feeling better than all the dreams that held my youth a still repining debtor. That nature gives her handmaid, art, the themes of sweet discoursing, the tender idols of the heart in every tongue rehearsing. Why dream of lands of gold and pearl, of loving knight and lady? when farmer boy and barefoot girl were wandering there already. I saw through all familiar things the romance underlying, the joys and griefs that plumed the wings of fancy skyward flying. I saw the same blithe day return, the same sweet fall of even, that rose on wooded craggy burn, and sank on crystal devon. I matched with Scotland's heathery hills the sweet briar and the clover, with air and dune, my native rills, their wood hymns chanting over. O'er rank and pomp, as he had seen, I saw the man uprising, no longer common or unclean, the child of God's baptizing. With clearer eyes I saw the worth of life among the lowly, 
the Bible at his cotter's hearth had made my own more holy. And if at times an evil strain, to lawless love appealing, broken upon the sweet refrain of pure and healthful feeling, it died upon the eye and ear, no inward answer gaining, no heart had I to see or hear the discord and the staining. Let those who never erred forget his worth, in vain bewailings, sweet soul of song. I own my debt uncancelled by his failings. Lament who of the ribald line which tells his lapse from duty, how kiss the maddening lips of wine or wanton ones of beauty. But think, while falls that shade between the erring one and heaven, that he who loved like Magdalene, like her may be forgiven. Not his the song whose thunderous chime eternal echoes render, the mournful Tuscan's haunted rhyme, and Milton's starry splendor. But who his human heart has laid to nature's bosom nearer? Who sweet and toil like him, or paid to love a tribute dearer? Through all his tuneful art, how strong the human feeling gushes the very moonlight of his song is warm with smiles and blushes. Give lettered pomp to teeth of time, so bonny dune, but tarry, blot out the epic stately rhyme, but spare his highland merry. 1854. To George B. Cheever. So spake Isaiah's, so, in words of flame, to Koa's prophet herdsmen smote with blame the traffickers and men, and put to shame, all earth and heaven before, the sacerdotal robbers of the poor. All the dread scripture lives for thee again, to smite like lightning on the hands profane lifted to bless the slave whip and the chain. Once more the old Hebrew tongue bends with the shafts of God about new strung. Take up the mantle which the prophets wore, worn with their warnings, show the Christ once more bound, scourged, and crucified in his blameless poor, and shake above our land the unquenched bolts that blazed in Hosea's hand. Not vainly shalt thou cast upon our years the solemn burdens of the Orient seers, and smite with truth a guilty nation's ears. Mightier was Luther's word than Seckingen's mailed arm or Hutton's sword. 1858. To James T. Fields on a blank leaf of Poems printed, not published. Well thought. Who would not rather hear the songs to love and friendship sung than those which move the stranger's tongue and feed his unselected ear? Our social joys are more than fame. Life withers in the public look. Why mount the pillory of a book or barter comfort for a name? Who in a house of glass would dwell with curious eyes at every pane? To ring him in and out again. Who wants the public crier's bell? To see the angel in one's way. Who wants to play the ass's part? Bear on his back the wizard art, and in his service speak or bray? And who his manly locks would shave, and quench the eyes of common sense, to share the noisy recompense that mocked the shorn and blinded slave? The heart has needs beyond the head, and starving in the plenitude of strange gifts, craves its common food, our human nature's daily bread. We are but men, no gods are we, to sit in mid-heaven, cold and bleak, each separate, on his painful peak thin-cloaked in self-complacency. Better his lot whose axe is swung in Wardbeg woods, or that poor girl's who by the hymn her spindle whirls and sings the songs that Luther sung, than his who, old and cold and vain, at Weimar sat a demigod and bowed with Jove's imperial nod his votaries in and out again. Ply, vanity, thy winged feet. Ambition, H-E-W, thy rocky stare. Who envies him who feeds on air the icy splendor of his seat? I see your Alps, above me, cut the dark, cold sky, and dim and lone I see ye sitting, stone on stone, with human senses dulled and shut. I could not reach you, 
if I would, nor sit among your cloudy shapes, and spare the fable of the grapes and fox, I would not if I could. Keep to your lofty pedestals. The safer plain below I choose who never wins can rarely lose, who never climbs as rarely falls. Let such as love the eagle's scream divide with him his home of ice for me shall gentler notes suffice, the valley song of bird and stream. The pastoral bleat, the drone of bees, the flail beat chiming far away, the cattle at shut of day, the voice of God in leaf and breeze. Then lend thy hand, my wiser friend, and help me to the valleys below, in truth, I have not far to go, where sweet with flowers the fields extend. 1858 The Memory of Burns Read at the Boston celebration of the hundredth anniversary of the birth of Robert Burns, 25th First M.O., 1859. In my absence these lines were read by Ralph Waldo Emerson. How sweetly come the holy psalms from saints and martyrs down, the waving of triumphal palms above the thorny crown the choral praise, the chanted prayers from harps by angels strum, the hunted Cameron's mountain airs, the hymns that Luther sung. Yet, jarring not the heavenly notes, the sounds of earth are heard, as through the open minster floats the song of breeze and bird not less the wonder of the sky that daisies bloom below. The brook sings on, though loud and high the cloudy organs blow. And if the tender ear be jarred that, haply, hears by turns the saintly harp of Olney's bard, the pastoral pipe of Burns, no discord mars his perfect plan who gave them both a tongue. For he who sings the love of man the love of God hath sung. Today be every fault forgiven of him in whom we joy we take, with thanks, the gold of heaven and leave the earth's alloy. Be ours his music as of spring, his sweetness as of flowers, the songs the bard himself might sing in holier ears than ours. Sweet airs of love and home, the hum of household melodies, come singing, as the robins come to sing in dooryard trees. And, heart to heart, two nations lean, no rivalries to twine, but blending in eternal green the holly and the pine. In remembrance of Joseph Sturge. In the fair land o'erwatched by Ischia's mountains, across the charmed bay whose blue waves keep with Capri's silver fountains perpetual holiday. A king lies dead, his wafer duly eaten, his gold-bought masses given, and Rome's great altar smokes with gums to sweeten her foulest gift to heaven. And while all Naples thrills with mute thanksgiving, the court of England's queen for the dead monster so abhorred while living in mourning garb is seen. With a true sorrow God rebukes that feigning. By lone edge Baston's side stands a great city in the skies sad reigning, bareheaded and wet-eyed. Silent for once the restless hive of labor, save the low funeral tread, or voice of craftsman whispering to his neighbor the good deeds of the dead. For him no minster's chant of the immortals rose from the lips of sin, no mitred priest swung back the heavenly portals to let the white soul in. But age and sickness framed their tearful faces in the low hovel's door, and prayers went up from all the dark by-places and ghettos of the poor. The pallid twala and the negro chattel, the vagrant of the street, the human dice wherewith in games of battle the lords of earth compete. Touched with a grief that needs no outward draping, all swelled the long lament, of grateful hearts, instead of marble, shaping his viewless monument. For never yet, with ritual pomp and splendor, in the long heretofore, a heart more loyal, warm, and true, and tender, has England's turf closed o'er. And if there fell from out her grand old steeples no crash of brazen wail, the murmurous woe of kindreds, tongues, and peoples swept in on every gale. 
It came from Holstein's birchen-belted meadows, and from the tropic calms of Indian islands in the sunlit shadows of Occidental palms. From the locked roadsteads of the Bothnii peasants, and harbors of the Finn, where war's worn victims saw his gentle presence come sailing, Christ-like, in. To seek the lost, to build the old waste places, to link the hostile shores of severing seas, and sell with England's daisies the moss of Finland's moors. Thanks for the good man's beautiful example, who in the vilas saw some sacred crypt or altar of a temple still vocal with God's law, and heard with tender ear the spirit sighing as from its prison cell, praying for pity, like the mournful crying of Jonah out of hell. Not his the golden pens or lips persuasion, but a fine sense of right, and truth's directness, meeting each occasion straight as a line of light. His faith and works, like streams that intermingle, in the same channel ran the crystal clearness of an eye kept single shamed all the frauds of man. The very gentlest of all human natures he joined to courage strong, and love outreaching unto all God's creatures with sturdy hate of wrong. Tender as woman, manliness and meekness in him were so allied that they who judged him by his strength or weakness saw but a single side. Men failed, betrayed him, but his zeal seemed nourished by failure and by fall. Still a large faith in humankind he cherished, and in God's love for all. And now he rests. His greatness and his sweetness no more shall seem at strife, and death has molded into calm completeness the statue of his life. Where the dews glisten and the songbirds warble, his dust to dust is laid, in nature's keeping, with no pomp of marble to shame his modest shade. The forges glow, the hammers all are ringing, beneath its smoky veil, hard by, the city of his love is swinging its clamorous iron flail. But round his grave are quietude and beauty, and the sweet heaven above, the fitting symbols of a life of duty transfigured into love. 1859. Brown of Osawatomie. John Brown of Osawatomie spake on his dying day. I will not have to shrive my soul a priest in slavery's pay, but let some poor slave mother whom I have striven to free, with her children, from the gallows stair put up a prayer for me. John Brown of Osawatomie, they led him out to die, and lo, a poor slave mother with her little child pressed nigh. Then the bold, blue eye grew tender, and the old harsh face grew mild, as he stooped between the jeering ranks and kissed the negro's child. The shadows of his stormy life that moment fell apart, and they who blamed the bloody hand forgave the loving heart. That kiss from all its guilty means redeemed the good intent, and round the grisly fighter's hair the martyr's aureole bent. Perish with him the folly that seeks through evil good long live the generous purpose unstained with human blood. Not the raid of midnight terror, but the thought which underlies, not the borderer's pride of daring, but the Christian's sacrifice. Nevermore may yon blue ridges the northern rifle here, nor see the light of blazing homes flash on the negro's spear. But let the free-winged angel truth their guarded passes scale to teach that right is more than might, and justice more than nail. So vainly shall Virginia set her battle in array. In vain her trampling squadrons knead the winter snow with clay. She may strike the pouncing eagle, but she dares not harm the dove, and every gate she bars to hate shall open wide to love. 1859. Naples inscribed to Robert C. Waterston of Boston. Helen Waterston died at Naples in her eighteenth year and lies buried in the Protestant cemetery there. The stone over her grave bears the lines. Fold her, O Father, in thine arms, 
and let her henceforth be a messenger of love between our human hearts and thee. I give thee joy. I know to thee the dearest spot on earth must be where sleeps thy loved one by the summer sea. Where, near her sweetest poet's tomb, the land of Virgil gave thee room to lay thy flower with her perpetual bloom. I know that when the sky shut down behind thee on the gleaming town, on Baie's baths and Pazilippo's crown, and through thy tears, the mocking day burned Ischia's mountain lines away, and Capri melted in its sunny bay. Through thy great farewell sorrow shot the sharp pang of a bitter thought that slaves must tread around that holy spot. Thou knewest not the land was blessed in giving thy beloved rest, holding the fond hope closer to her breast. That every sweet and saintly grave was freedom's prophecy, and gave the pledge of heaven to sanctify and save. That pledge is answered. To thy ear the unchained city sends its cheer, and tuned to joy, the muffled bells of fear. Ring victor in. The land sits free and happy by the summer sea, and bourbon Naples now is Italy. She smiles above her broken chain the languid smile that follows pain, stretching her cramped limbs to the sun again. Oh, joy for all, who hear her call from grey Camaldoli's convent wall and Elmo's towers to freedom's carnival. A new life breathes among her vines and olives, like the breath of pines blown downward from the breezy Apennines. Lean, O oh my friend, to meet that breath, rejoice as one who witnesseth beauty from ashes rise, and life from death. Thy sorrow shall no more be pain, its tears shall fall in sunlit rain, riding the grave with flowers. Arisen again! 1860. A memorial. Moses Austin Cartland, a dear friend and relation, who led a faithful life as a teacher and died in the summer of 1863. Oh, thicker, deeper, darker growing, the solemn vista to the tomb must know henceforth another shadow and give another cypress room. In love surpassing that of brothers, we walked, O oh friend, from childhood's day, and looking back o'er fifty summers, our footprints track a common way. One in our faith, and one our longing to make the world within our reach somewhat the better for our living and gladder for our human speech. Thou heardst with me the far-off voices, the old beguiling song of fame, but life to thee was warm and present, and love was better than a name. To homely joys and loves and friendships thy genial nature fondly clung, and so the shadow on the dial ran back and left thee always young. And who could blame the generous weakness which, only to thyself unjust, so overprized the worth of others, and dwarfed thy own with self-distrust? All hearts grew warmer in the presence of one who, seeking not his own, gave freely for the love of giving, nor reaped for self the harvest sown. Thy greeting smile was pledge and prelude of generous deeds and kindly words, and thy large heart were fair guest chambers, open to sunrise and the birds. The task was thine to mold and fashion life's plastic newness into grace to make the boyish heart heroic, and light with thought the maiden's face. O'er all the land, in town and prairie, with bended heads of mourning, stand the living forms that owe their beauty and fitness to thy shaping hand. Thy call has come in ripened manhood, the noonday calm of heart and mind, while I, who dreamed of thy remaining to mourn me, linger still behind. Live on to own, with self-upbraiding, a debt of love still due from me, the vain remembrance of occasions, forever lost, of serving thee. It was not mine among thy kindred to join the silent funeral prayers, but all that long sad day of summer my tears of mourning dropped with theirs. All day the sea waves sobbed with sorrow, 
The birds forgot their merry trills all day I heard the pines lamenting with thine upon thy homestead hills. Green be those hillside pines forever, and green the meadowy lowlands be, and green the old memorial beeches, named Carvin in the woods of Lee. Still let them greet thy life companions who thither turn their pilgrim feet, in every mossy line recalling a tender memory sadly sweet. O friend, if thought and sense avail not to know thee henceforth as thou art, that all is well with thee forever I trust the instincts of my heart. Thine be the quiet habitations, thine the green pastures, blossom sown, and smiles of saintly recognition, as sweet and tender as thy own. Thou comest not from the hush and shadow to meet us, but to thee we come, with thee we never can be strangers, and where thou art must still be home. 1863. Bryant on his birthday. Mr. Bryant's 70th birthday, November 3, 1864, was celebrated by a festival to which these verses were sent. We praise not now the poet's art, the rounded beauty of his song, who weighs him from his life apart must do his nobler nature wrong. Not for the eye, familiar grown with charms to common sight denied, the marvelous gift he shares alone with him who walked on Rydal side. Not for wrapped him nor woodland lay, too grave for smiles, too sweet for tears, we speak his praise who wears today the glory of his seventy years. When peace brings freedom in her train, let happy lips his songs rehearse. His life is now his noblest strain, his manhood better than his verse. Thank God. His hand on nature's keys its cunning keeps at life's full span. But dimmed and dwarfed, in times like these, the poet seems beside the man. So be it. Let the garlands die, the singer's wreath, the painter's mead. Let our names perish, if thereby our country may be saved and freed. 1864. Thomas Starr King. Published originally as a prelude to the posthumous volume of selections edited by Richard Frothingham. The great work laid upon his two score years is done, and well done. If we drop our tears, who loved him as few men were ever loved, we mourn no blighted hope nor broken plan with him whose life stands rounded and approved in the full growth and stature of a man. Mingle, O bells, along the western slope, with your deep toll a sound of faith and hope. Wave cheerily still, O banner, halfway down, from thousand-masted bay and steepled town. Let the strong organ with its loftiest swell lift the proud sorrow of the land, and tell that the brave sower saw his ripened grain. O east and west! O morn and sunset twain no more forever, has he lived in vain who, priest of freedom, made you one, and told your bridal service from his lips of gold? 1864. Lines on a Flyleaf. I need not ask thee, for my sake, to read a book which well may make its way by native force of wit without my manual sign to it. Its piquant writer needs from me no gravely masculine guarantee, and well might laugh her merriest laugh at broken spears in her behalf. Yet, spite of all the critics tell, I frankly own I like her well. It may be that she wields a pen too sharply nibbed for thin-skinned men, that her keen arrows search and try the armor joints of dignity, and though alone for errament, sing through the air irreverent. I blame her not, the young athlete who plants her woman's tiny feet, and dares the chances of debate where bearded men might hesitate, who, deeply earnest, seeing well the ludicrous and laughable, Mingling in eloquent excess her anger and her tenderness, and chiding with a half-caress strives, less for her own sex than ours, with principalities and powers, and points us upward to the clear sunned heights of her new atmosphere. 
Heaven mend her faults. I will not pause to weigh and doubt and peck at flaws, or waste my pity when some fool provokes her measureless ridicule. Strong-minded is she? Better so than dullness set for sale or show, a household folly, capped and belled in fashion's dance of puppets held, or poor pretense of womanhood, whose formal, flavorless platitude is warranted from all offense of robust meaning's violence. Give me the wine of thought whose head sparkles along the page I read, electric words in which I find the tonic of the northwest wind, the wisdom which itself allies to sweet and pure humanities, where scorn of meanness, hate of wrong, are underlaid by love as strong, the genial play of mirth that lights grave themes of thought, as when, on nights of summertime, the harmless blaze of thunderless heat lightning plays, and tree and hilltop resting dim and doubtful on the sky's vague rim. Touched by that soft and lambent gleam, start sharply outlined from their dream. Talk not to me of woman's sphere, nor point with scripture text a sneer, nor wrong the manliest saint of all by doubt, if he were here, that Paul would own the heroines who have lent grace to truth's stern arbitrament, foregone the praise to woman's sweet, and cast their crowns at duty's feet. Like her, who by her strong appeal made fashion weep and mammon feel, who, earliest summoned to withstand the color madness of the land, counted her lifelong losses gain, and made her own her sisters. Pain, or her who, in her greenwood shade, heard the sharp call that freedom made, and answering, struck from Sappho's lyre of love the Turtman Carmen's fire or that young girl, Domremy's maid revived a nobler cause to aid, shaking from warning fingertips the doom of her apocalypse. Or her, who worldwide entrance gave to the log cabin of the slave, made all his want and sorrow known, and all earth's languages his own. 1866. George L. Stearns. No man rendered greater service to the cause of freedom than Major Stearns in the great struggle between invading slaveholders and the free settlers of Kansas. He has done the work of a true man. Crown him, honor him, love him. Weep over him, tears of woman, stoop manliest brows above him. O dusky mothers and daughters, vigils of mourning keep for him. Up in the mountains and down by the waters, lift up your voices and weep for him. For the warmest of hearts is frozen, the freest of hands is still, and the gap in our picked and chosen the long years may not fill. No duty could overtask him, no need his will outrun, or ever our lips could ask him, his hands the work had done. He forgot his own soul for others, himself to his neighbor lending. He found the Lord in his suffering brothers, and not in the clouds descending. So the bed was sweet to die on, whence he saw the doors wide swung against whose bolted iron the strength of his life was flung. And he saw ere his eye was darkened the sheaves of the harvest bringing, and knew while his ear yet hearkened the voice of the reapers singing. Ah, well, the world is discreet, there are plenty to pause and wait, but here was a man who set his feet sometimes in advance of fate, plucked off the old bark when the inner was slow to renew it, and put to the Lord's work the sinner when saints failed to do it. Never rode to the wrongs redressing a worthier paladin. Shall he not hear the blessing? Good and faithful, enter in. 1867. Garibaldi. In trance and dream of old, God's prophet saw the casting down of thrones. Thou, watching lone the hot Sardinian coastline, hazy-hilled, where, fringing round Caprera's rocky zone with foam, the slow waves gather and withdraw, beholds the vision of the seer fulfilled and hears the sea winds burdened with the sound of falling chains, as, one by one, 
unbound, the nations lift their right hands up and swear their oath of freedom. From the chalk-white wall of England, from the black Carpathian range, along the Danube and the Tice, through all the passes of the Spanish Pyrenees, and from the Seine's thronged banks, a murmur strange and glad floats to the o'er thy summer seas on the salt wind that stirs thy whitening hair, the song of freedom's bloodless victories. Rejoice, O Garibaldi! Though thy sword failed at Rome's gates, and blood seemed vainly poured where, in Christ's name, the crowned infidel of France wrought murder with the arms of hell on that sad mountain slope whose ghostly dead, unmindful of the grey exorcist's ban, walk, unappeased, the chambered Vatican, and draw the curtains of Napoleon's bed. God's providence is not blind, but full of eyes, it searches all the refuges of lies, and in his time and way, the accursed things before whose evil feet that battle gauge has clashed defiance from hot youth to age shall perish. All men shall be priests and kings, one royal brotherhood, one church made free by love, which is the law of liberty 1869. To Lydia Maria Child, on reading her poem in The Standard, Mrs. Child wrote her lines, beginning, Again the trees are clothed in vernal green. May 24, 1859 on the first anniversary of Ellis Gray Loring's death, but did not publish them for some years afterward, when I first read them, or I could not have made the reference which I did to the extinction of slavery. The sweet spring day is glad with music, but through it sounds a sadder strain. The worthiest of our narrowing circle sings Loring's dirges o'er again. O woman greatly loved, I join thee in tender memories of our friend. With thee across the awful spaces the greeting of a soul I send. What cheer hath he? How is it with him? Where lingers he this weary while? Over what pleasant fields of heaven dawns the sweet sunrise of his smile? Does he not know our feet are treading the earth hard down on slavery's grave? That, in our crowning exultations, we miss the charm his presence gave? Why on this spring air comes no whisper from him to tell us all is well? Why to our flower time comes no token of lily and of asphodel? I feel the unutterable longing. Thy hunger of the heart is mine. I reach and grope for hands in darkness. My ear grows sharp for voice or sign. Still on the lips of all we question the finger of God's silence lies. Will the lost hands and ours be folded? Will the shut eyelids ever rise? O oh, friend, no proof beyond this yearning, this outreach of our hearts, we need. God will not mock the hope he giveth. No love he prompts shall vainly plead. Then let us stretch our hands in darkness and call our loved ones o'er and o'er. Some day their arms shall close about us, and the old voices speak once more. No dreary splendors wait our coming where rapt ghost sits from ghost apart. Homeward we go to heaven's thanksgiving, the harvest gathering of the heart. 1870. The Singer. This poem was written on the death of Alice Carey. Her sister Phoebe, heartbroken by her loss, followed soon after. Noble and richly gifted, Lovely in person and character, they left behind them only friends and admirers. Years since, but names to me before, two sisters sought at eve my door. Two songbirds wandering from their nest, a gray old farmhouse in the west. How fresh of life the younger one, half smiles, half tears, like rain and sun. Her gravest mood could scarce displace the dimples of her nut-brown face. What sparkled on her lips not less for quick and tremulous tenderness and following close her merriest glance, dreamed through her eyes the heart's romance. Timid and still, 
The elder had even then a smile too sweetly sad, the crown of pain that all must wear too early pressed her midnight hair. Yet ere the summer eve grew long, her modest lips were sweet with song, a memory haunted all her words of clover fields and singing birds. Her dark, dilating eyes expressed the broad horizons of the west, her speech dropped prairie flowers, the gold of harvest wheat about her rolled. Foredoomed to song she seemed to me I queried not with destiny I knew the trial and the need, yet, all the more, I said God's speed? What could I other than I did? Could I a singing bird forbid? Deny the wind-stirred leaf? Rebuke the music of the forest brook? She went with mourning from my door, but left me richer than before. Thenceforth I knew her voice of cheer, the welcome of her partial ear. Years passed. Through all the land her name a pleasant household word became all felt behind the singer stood a sweet and gracious womanhood. Her life was earnest work, not play. Her tired feet climbed a weary way, and even through her lightest strain we heard an undertone of pain. Unseen of her her fair fame grew, the good she did she rarely knew, unguessed of her in life the love that rained its tears her grave above. When last I saw her, full of peace, she waited for her great release and that old friend so sage and bland, our later Franklin, held her hand. For all that patriot bosom stirs had moved that woman's heart of hers, and men who toiled in storm and sun found her their meet companion. Our converse, from her suffering bed to healthful themes of life she led the outdoor world of bud and bloom and light and sweetness filled her room. Yet evermore an underthought of loss to come within us wrought, and all the while we felt the strain of the strong will that conquered pain. God giveth quietness at last. The common way that all have passed she went, with mortal yearnings fond, to fuller life and love beyond. Fold the rapt soul in your embrace, my dear ones. Give the singer place to you, to her, I know not where, I lift the silence of a prayer. For only thus our own we find, the gone before, the left behind, all mortal voices died between, the unheard reaches the unseen. Again the blackbirds sing, the streams wake, laughing, from their winter dreams, and tremble in the April showers the tassels of the maple flowers. But not for her has spring renewed the sweet surprises of the wood, and bird and flower are lost to her who was their best interpreter. What to shut eyes has God revealed? What here the ears that death has sealed? What undreamed beauty passing show requites the loss of all we know? O silent land, to which we move, enough if there alone be love, and mortal need can ne'er outgrow what it is waiting to bestow. O white soul, from that far-off shore float some sweet song the waters o'er. Our faith confirm, our fears dispel, with the old voice we loved so well. 1871. How Mary Grew. These lines were in answer to an invitation to hear a lecture of Mary Grew, of Philadelphia, before the Boston Radical Club. The reference in the last stanza is to an essay on Sappho by T., W. Higginson, read at the club the preceding month. With wisdom far beyond her years, and graver than her wondering peers, so strong, so mild, combining still the tender heart and queenly will, to conscience and to duty true, so, up from childhood, Mary grew. Then in her gracious womanhood she gave her days to doing good. She dared the scornful laugh of men, the hounding mob, the slanderous pen. She did the work she found to do, a Christian heroine, Mary Grew. The freed slave thanks her. Blessing comes to her from women's weary homes. The wronged and erring find in her their censor mild and comforter. 
the world were safe if but a few could grow in grace as Mary grew. So, New Year's Eve, I sit and say, by this low wood fire, ashen gray, just wishing, as the night shuts down, that I could hear in Boston town, in pleasant Chestnut Avenue, from her own lips, how Mary grew, and hear her graceful hostess tell the silver-voiced oracle who lately through her parlors spoke as through Dodona's sacred oak, a wiser truth than any told by Sappho's lips of ruddy gold, the way to make the world anew, is just to grow, as Mary grew 1871. Sumner. I am not one who has disgraced beauty of sentiment by deformity of conduct, or the maxims of a freeman by the actions of a slave, but by the grace of God I have kept my life unsullied. Milton's Defense of the People of England. O Mother State, the winds of March blew chill o'er Auburn's field of God, where, slow, beneath a leaden arch of sky, thy mourning children trod. And now, with all thy woods in leaf, thy fields in flower, beside thy dead thou sittest, in thy robes of grief, a Rachel yet uncomforted. And once again the organ swells, once more the flag is halfway hung, and yet again the mournful bells in all thy steeple towers are rung. And I, obedient to thy will, have come a simple wreath to lay, superfluous, on a grave that still is sweet with all the flowers of May. I take with awe the task assigned, it may be that my friend might miss, in his new sphere of heart and mind, some token from my band in this. By many a tender memory moved, along the past my thought I send, the record of the cause he loved is the best record of its friend. No trumpet sounded in his ear, he saw not Sinai's cloud and flame, but never yet to Hebrew seer a clearer voice of duty came. God said, Break thou these yokes, undo these heavy burdens. I ordain a work to last thy whole life through, a ministry of strife and pain. Forgo thy dreams of lettered ease, put thou the scholar's promise by, the rights of man are more than these. He heard and answered, Here am I. He set his face against the blast, his feet against the flinty shard, till the hard service grew, at last, its own exceeding great reward. Lifted like Saul's above the crowd, upon his kingly forehead fell the first sharp bolt of slavery's cloud, launched at the truth he urged so well. Ah! Never yet, at rack or stake, was sore loss made freedom's gain, than his, who suffered for her sake the beak-torn titan's lingering pain. The fixed star of his faith, through all loss, doubt, and peril, shone the same, as through a night of storm, some tall, strong lighthouse lifts its steady flame. Beyond the dust and smoke he saw the sheaves of freedom's large increase, the holy fanes of equal law, the new Jerusalem of peace. The weak might fear, the worldling mock, the faint and blind of heart regret, all knew at last th eternal rock on which his forward feet were set. The subtlest scheme of compromise was folly to his purpose bold. The strongest mesh of party lies weak to the simplest truth he told. One language held his heart and lip, straight onward to his goal he trod, and proved the highest statesmanship obedience to the voice of God. No wail was in his voice, none heard, when trees and storm cloud blackest grew, the weakness of a doubtful word, his duty, and the end he knew. The first to smite, the first to spare, when once the hostile ensigns fell, he stretched out hands of generous care to lift the foe he fought so well. For there was nothing base or small or craven in his soul's broad plan. Forgiving all things personal, he hated only wrong to man. The old traditions of his state, the memories of her great and good, took from his life a fresher date, 
and in himself embodied stood. How felt the greed of golden place, the venal crew that schemed and planned, the fine scorn of that haughty face, the spurning of that bribeless hand. If then Rome's tribune statelier he wore his senatorial robe, his lofty port was all for her, the one dear spot on all the globe. If to the master's plea he gave the vast contempt his manhood felt, he saw a brother in the slave, with man as equal man he dealt. Proud was he? If his presence kept its grandeur where sore he trod, as if from Plutarch's gallery stepped the hero and the demigod. None failed, at least, to reach his ear, nor want nor woe appealed in vain. The homesick soldier knew his cheer, and blessed him from his ward of pain. Safely his dearest friends may own the slight defects he never hid, the surface blemish in the stone of the tall, stately pyramid. Suffice it that he never brought his conscience to the public mart, but lived himself the truth he taught, white-souled, clean-handed, pure of heart. What if he felt the natural pride of power and noble use, too true with thin humilities to hide the work he did, the lore he knew? Was he not just? Was any wrong by that assured self-estimate? He took but what to him belonged, unenvious of another's state. Well might he heed the words he spake, and skin with care the written page through which he still shall warm and wake the hearts of men from age to age. Ah! Who shall blame him now because he solaced thus his hours of pain? Should not the o'erworn thresher pause, and hold to light his golden grain? No sense of humor dropped its oil on the hard ways his purpose went. Small play of fancy lightened toil. He spake alone the thing he meant. He loved his books, the art that hints a beauty veiled behind its own, the graver's line, the pencil's tints, the chisel's shape evoked from stone. He cherished, void of selfish ends, the social courtesies that bless and sweeten life, and loved his friends with most unworldly tenderness. But still his tired eyes rarely learned the glad relief by nature brought. Her mountain ranges never turned his current of persistent thought. The sea rolled chorus to his speech three bank-like Latium's tall trireme, with laboring oars. The grove and beech were forum and the academe. The sensuous joy from all things fair his strenuous bent of soul repressed, and left from youth to silvered hair few hours for pleasure, none for rest. For all his life was poor without, O nature, make the last amends train all thy flowers his grave about, and make thy singing birds his friends. Revive again, thou summer rain, the broken turf upon his bed breathe, summer wind, thy tenderest strain of low, sweet music overhead. With calm and beauty symbolize the peace which follows long annoy, and lend our earth bent, morning eyes, some hint of his diviner joy. For safe with right and truth he is, as God lives he must live alway. There is no end for souls like his, no night for children of the day. Nor can nor poor solicitudes made weak his life's great argument. Small leisure his for frames and moods who followed duty where she went. The broad, fair fields of God he saw beyond the bigot's narrow bound. The truths he molded into law in Christ's beatitudes he found. His statecraft was the golden rule, his right of vote a sacred trust. Clear, over threat and ridicule, all heard his challenge. Is it just? And when the hour supreme had come, not for himself a thought he gave, in that last pang of martyrdom, his care was for the half-freed slave. Not vainly dusky hands up or, in prayer, the passing soul to heaven whose mercy to his suffering poor was service to the master given. Long shall the good state's annals tell, her children's children long be taught, how, praised or blamed, 
he guarded well the trust he neither shunned nor sought. If for one moment turned thy face, O mother, from thy son, not long he waited calmly in his place the sure remorse which follows wrong. Forgiven be the state he loved the one brief lapse, the single blot. Forgotten be the stain removed, her righted record shows it not. The lifted sword above her shield with jealous care shall guard his fame. The pine tree on her ancient field to all the winds shall speak his name. The marble image of her son her loving hands shall yearly crown, and from her pictured pantheon his grand, majestic face look down. O state so passing rich before, who now shall doubt thy highest claim? The world that counts thy jewels o'er shall longest pause at Sumner's name. 1874. There's. I. Fate summoned, in grey-bearded age, to act a history stranger than his written fact, him who portrayed the splendor and the gloom of that great hour when throne and altar fell with long death groan which still is audible. He, when around the walls of Paris rung the Prussian bugle like the blast of doom, and every ill which follows unblessed war maddened all France from Finisterre to Var, the weight of fourscore from his shoulders flung, and guided freedom in the path he saw lead out of chaos into light and law, peace, not imperial, but republican, an order pledged to all the rights of man. 2. Death called him from a need as imminent as that from which the silent William went when powers of evil, like the smiting seas on Holland's dikes, assailed her liberties. Sadly, while yet in doubtful balance hung the wheel and woe of France, the bells were rung for her lost leader. Paralyzed of will, above his beer the hearts of men stood still. Then, as if set to his dead lips, the horn of Roland wound once more to rouse and warn, the old voice filled the air. His last brave word not vainly France to all her boundaries stirred. Strong as in life, he still for freedom wrought, as the dead sit at Red Toloso fought. 1877. Fitzgreen Halleck. At the unveiling of his statue. Among their graven shapes to whom thy civic wreaths belong, O city of his love, make room for one whose gift was song. Not his the soldier's sword to wield, nor his the helm of state, nor glory of the stricken field nor triumph of debate. In common ways, with common men, he served his race and time as well as if his clerkly pen had never danced to rhyme. If, in the thronged and noisy mart, the muses found their son, could any say his tuneful art a duty left undone? He toiled and sang, and year by year men found their homes more sweet, and through a tenderer atmosphere looked down the brick-walled street. The Greeks' wild onset Gaul Street knew, the Red King walked Broadway and Alnwick Castle's roses blew from palisades to bay. Fair city by the sea, upraise his veil with reverent hands, and mingle with thy own the praise and pride of other lands. Let Greece his fiery lyric breathe above her hero urns, and Scotland, with her holly, wreathe the flower he culled for burns. O oh, stately stand thy palace walls, thy tall ships ride the seas, today thy poet's name recalls a prouder thought than these. Not less thy pulse of trade shall beat, nor less thy tall fleets swim, that shaded square and dusty street are classic ground through him. Alive, he loved, like all who sing, the echoes of his song, too late the tardy mead we bring, the praise delayed so long. Too late, alas! Of all who knew the living man, today before his unveiled face, how few make bare their locks of grey. Our lips of praise must soon be dumb, our grateful eyes be dim. O brothers of the days to come, take tender charge of him. New hands the wires of song may sweep, new voices challenge fame, 
but let no moss of years o'ercreep the lines of Halleck's name. 1877. William Francis Bartlett. Oh, well may Essex sit forlorn beside her sea-blown shore. Her well-beloved, her noblest born, is hers in life no more. No lapse of years can render less her memory's sacred claim. No fountain of forgetfulness can wet the lips of fame. A grief alike to wound and heal, a thought to soothe and pain, the sad, sweet pride that mothers feel to her must still remain. Good men and true she has not lacked, and brave men yet shall be. The perfect flower, the crowning fact, of all her years was he. As Galahad pure, as Merlin sage, what worthier knight was found to grace in Arthur's golden age the fabled table round? A voice, the battle's trumpet note, to welcome and restore. A hand, that all unwilling smote, to heal and build once more. A soul of fire, a tender heart too warm for hate, he knew the generous victor's graceful part to sheathe the sword he drew. When earth, as if on evil dreams, looks back upon her wars, and the white light of Christ outstreams from the red disk of Mars. His fame who led the stormy van of battle well may cease, but never that which crowns the man whose victory was peace. Mourn Essex, on thy sea-blown shore thy beautiful and brave, whose failing hand the olive bore, whose dying lips forgave. Let age lament the youthful chief, and tender eyes be dim. The tears are more of joy than grief that fall for one like him. 1878. Bayard Taylor. Ay, and where now, Bayard, will thy footsteps tend? My sister asked our guest one winter's day. Smiling, he answered in the friend's sweet way common to both. Wherever thou shalt send, what wouldst thou have me see for thee? She laughed, her dark eyes dancing in the woodfire's glow. Lofoden Isles, the Kilpies, and the low, unsetting sun on Finmark's fishing craft. All these and more I soon shall see for thee, he answered cheerily, and he kept his pledge on Lapland's snows, the North Cape's windy wedge, and Tromso freezing in its winter sea. He went and came. But no man knows the track of his last journey, and he comes not back. Two, he brought us wonders of the new and old. We shared all climes with him. The Arabs tend to him its storytelling secret lent. And pleased, we listened to the tales he told. His task, beguiled with songs that shall endure, in manly, honest thoroughness he wrought. From humble homelays to the heights of thought slowly he climbed, but every step was sure. How, with the generous pride that friendship hath, we, who so loved him, saw at last the crown of civic honor on his brows pressed down, rejoiced, and knew not that the gift was death. And now for him, whose praise and deafened ears two nations speak, we answer but with tears. 3. O Vale of Chester! Trod by him so oft, green as thy June turf keep his memory. Let nor wood, nor dell, nor storied stream forget, nor winds that blow round lonely Cedarcroft. Let the home voices greet him in the far, strange land that holds him. Let the messages of love pursue him o'er the chartless seas and unmapped vastness of his unknown star love's language, heard beyond the loud discourse of perishable fame, in every sphere itself interprets. And its utterance here somewhere in God's unfolding universe shall reach our traveler, softening the surprise of his rapt. Gaze on unfamiliar skies. 1879. Our Autocrat. Read at the breakfast given in honor of Dr. Holmes by the publishers of the Atlantic Monthly, December 3, 1879. His laurels fresh from song and lay, romance, art, science, 
rich in all, and young of heart, how dare we say we keep his seventieth festival? No sense is here of loss or lack, before his sweetness and his light the dial holds its shadow back, the charmed hours delay their flight. His still the keen analysis of men and moods, electric wit, free play of mirth, and tenderness to heal the slightest wound from it. And his the pathos touching all life's sins and sorrows and regrets, its hopes and fears, its final call and rest beneath the violets. His sparkling surface scarce betrays the thoughtful tide beneath it rolled, the wisdom of the latter days, and tender memories of the old. What shapes and fancies, grave or gay, before us at his bidding come the treadmill tramp, the one-horse shay, the dumb despair of Elsie's doom. The tale of Avis and the maid, the plea for lips that cannot speak, the holy kiss that Iris laid on little Boston's pallid cheek. Long may he live to sing for us his sweetest songs at evening time, and, like his chambered nautilus, to holier heights of beauty climb. Though now unnumbered guests surround the table that he rules at will, its autocrat, however crowned, is but our friend and comrade still. The world may keep his honored name, the wealth of all his very powers, a stronger claim has love than fame, and he himself is only ours. Within the gate. L. M. C. I have more fully expressed my admiration and regard for Lydia Maria Child in the biographical introduction which I wrote for the volume of letters, published after her death. We sat together, last May Day, and talked of the dear friends who walked beside us, sharers of the hopes and fears of five and forty years. Since first we met in freedom's hope forlorn, and heard her battle-horn sound through the valleys of the sleeping north, calling her children forth. And youth pressed forward with hope-lighted eyes, and age, with forecast wise of the long strife before the triumph won, girded his armor on. Sadly, as name by name we called the roll, we heard the dead bells toll for the unanswering many, and we knew the living were the few. And we, who waited our own call before the inevitable door, listened and looked, as all have done, to win some token from within. No sign we saw, we heard no voices call, the impenetrable wall cast down its shadow, like an awful doubt, on all who sat without. Of many a hint of life beyond the veil, and many a ghostly tale wherewith the ages span the gulf between the seen and the unseen. Seeking from omen, trance, and dream to gain solace to doubtful pain, and touch, with groping hands, the garment hem of truth sufficing them. We talked, and turning from the sore unrest of an all-baffling quest, we thought of holy lives that from us passed hopeful unto the last. As if they saw beyond the river of death, like him of Nazareth, the many mansions of the eternal days lift up their gates of praise. And hushed to silence by a reverent awe, methought, O friend, I saw in thy true life of word, and work, and thought the proof of all we sought. Did we not witness in the life of the immortal prophecy? And feel, when with thee, that thy footsteps trod an everlasting road? Not for brief days thy generous sympathies, thy scorn of selfish ease, not for the poor prize of an earthly goal thy strong uplift of soul. The nine was never turned a fonder heart to nature and to art in fair-formed Hellas in her golden prime, thy Philothea's time. Yet, loving beauty, thou couldst pass it by, and for the poor deny thyself, and see thy fresh, sweet flower of fame wither in blight and blame. Sharing his love who holds in his embrace the lowliest of our race, Sure the divine economy must be conservative of thee. For truth must live with truth, self-sacrifice seek out its great allies. Good must find good by gravitation sure, 
and love with love endure. And so, since thou hast passed within the gate whereby a while I wait, I give blind grief and blinder sense the lie thou hast not lived to die. 1881. In memory. James T. Fields. As a guest who may not stay long and sad farewells to say glides with smiling face away. Of the sweetness and the zest of thy happy life possessed thou hast left us at thy best. Warm of heart and clear of brain, of thy sunbright spirits wain thou hast spared us all the pain. Now that thou hast gone away, what is left of one to say who was open as the day? What is there to gloss or shun? Save with kindly voices none speak thy name beneath the sun. Safe thou art on every side, friendship nothing finds to hide, love's demand is satisfied. Over manly strength and worth, at thy desk of toil, or hearth, played the lambent light of mirth. Mirth that lit, but never burned, all thy blame to pity turned, hatred thou hadst never learned. Every harsh and vexing thing at thy home fire lost its sting, where thou wast was always spring. And thy perfect trust in good, faith in man and womanhood, chance and change and time, withstood. Small respect for cant and wine, bigot's zeal and hate malign, had that sunny soul of thine. But to thee was duty's claim sacred, and thy lips became reverent with one holy name. Therefore, on thy unknown way, go in God's peace. We who stay but a little while delay. Keep for us, O friend, where'er thou art waiting, all that here made thy earthly presence dear. Something of thy pleasant past on a ground of wonder cast, in the stiller water's glass. Keep the human heart of thee, let the mortal only be clothed in immortality. And when fall our feet as fell thine upon the asphodel, let thy old smile greet us well. Proving in a world of bliss what we fondly dream in this, love is one with holiness. 1881. Wilson. Read at the Massachusetts Club on the 70th anniversary the birthday of Vice President Wilson, February 16, 1882. The lowliest born of all the land, he wrung from fate's reluctant hand the gifts which happier boyhood claims, and tasting on a thankless soil the bitter bread of unpaid toil, he fed his soul with noble aims. And nature, kindly provident, to him the future's promise lent, the powers that shape man's destinies, patience and faith and toil, he knew, the close horizon round him grew, broad with great possibilities. By the low hearth fire's fitful blaze he read of old heroic days, the sage's thought, the patriot's speech, unhelped, alone, himself he taught, his school the craft at which he wrought, his lore the book within his, reach. He felt his country's need, he knew the work her children had to do, and when, at last, he heard the call in her behalf to serve and dare, Beside his senatorial chair he stood the unquestioned peer of all. Beyond the accident of birth he proved his simple manhood's worth. Ancestral pride and classic grace confessed the large-brained artisan, so clear of sight, so wise in plan and counsel, equal to his place. With glance intuitive he saw through all disguise of form and law, and read men like an open book. Fearless and firm, he never quailed nor turned aside for threats nor failed to do the thing he undertook. How wise, how brave, he was, how well he bore himself, let history tell while waves are flag o'er land and sea, no black thread in its warp or weft. He found dissevered states, he left a grateful nation, strong and free. The poet and the children. Longfellow. With the glory of winter sunshine over his locks of gray, in the old historic mansion he sat on his last birthday. 
with his books and his pleasant pictures, and his household and his kin, while a sound as of myriads singing from far and near stolen. It came from his own fair city, from the prairie's boundless plain, from the golden gate of sunset, and the cedarn woods of Maine. And his heart grew warm within him, and his moistening eyes grew dim, for he knew that his country's children were singing the songs of him. The lays of his life's glad morning, the psalms of his evening time, whose echoes shall float forever on the winds of every clime. All their beautiful consolations, sent forth like birds of cheer, came flocking back to his windows, and sang in the poet's ear. Grateful, but solemn and tender, the music rose and fell with a joy akin to sadness and a greeting like farewell. With a sense of awe he listened to the voices sweet and young, the last of earth and the first of heaven seemed in the songs they sung. And waiting a little longer for the wonderful change to come, he heard the summoning angel, who calls God's children home. And to him in a holier welcome was the mystical meaning given of the words of the blessed master. Of such is the kingdom of heaven! 1882. A welcome to Lowell. Take our hands, James Russell Lowell, our hearts are all thy own. Today we bid thee welcome not for ourselves alone. In the long years of thy absence some of us have grown old, and some have passed the portals of the mystery untold. For the hands that cannot clasp thee, for the voices that are dumb, for each and all I bid thee a grateful welcome home. For Cedarcroft's sweet singer to the ninefold muses dear, for the seer the winding concord paused by his door to hear. For him, our guide and Nestor, who the march of song began, the white locks of his ninety years bared to thy winds, Capen. For him who, to the music her pines and hemlocks played, set the old and tender story of the lorn Acadian maid. For him, whose voice for freedom swayed friend and foe at will, hushed is the tongue of silver, the golden lips are still. For her whose life of duty at scoff and menace smiled, brave as the wife of Roland, yet gentle as a child. And for him the three-hilled city shall hold in memory long, those name is the hint and token of the pleasant fields of song. For the old friends unforgotten, for the young thou hast not known, I speak their heart-warm greeting, come back and take thy own. From England's royal farewells, and honors fitly paid, come back, dear Russell Lowell, to Elmwood's waiting shade. Come home with all the garlands that crown of right thy head. I speak for comrades living, I speak for comrades dead. Amesbury, 6th Mo, 1885. An artist of the beautiful. George Fuller. Haunted of beauty, like the marvelous youth who sang St. Agnes Eve. How passing fair her shapes took color in thy homestead air. How on thy canvas even her dreams were truth. Magician, who from commonest elements called up divine ideals, clothed upon by mystic lights soft blending into one womanly grace and childlike innocence. Teacher I thy lesson was not given in vain. Beauty is goodness, ugliness is sin, art's place is sacred, nothing foul therein may crawl or tread with bestial feet profane. If rightly choosing is the painter's test, thy choice, O master, ever was the best. 1885. Mulford. Author of the Nation and the Republic of God. Unnoted as the setting of a star he passed, and sect and party scarcely knew when from their midst a sage and seer withdrew to fitter audience, where the great dead are in God's republic of the heart and mind, leaving no purer, nobler soul behind. 1886. To a cape and schooner. Luck to the craft that bears this name of mine, 
good fortune follow with her golden spoon the glazed hat and tarry pantaloon, and wheresoe her keel shall cut the brine, cod, hake and haddock quarrel for her line. Shipped with her crew, whatever wind may blow, or tides delay, my wish with her shall go, fishing by proxy. Would that it might show a need her course, in lack of sun and star, where icebergs threaten, and the sharp reefs are, lift the blind fog on Anticosti's lee and Avalon's rock, make populous the sea round Grand Manon with eager finny swarms, break the long calms, and charm away the storms. Oak Knoll, 23 3rd M.O., 1886. Samuel J. Tilden. Greystone, August 4, 1886. Once more, O all-adjusting death, the nation's pantheon opens wide. Once more a common sorrow saith a strong, wise man has died. Faults doubtless had he. Had we not our own, to question and asperse the worth we doubted or forgot until beside his hearse? Ambitious, cautious, yet the man to strike down fraud with resolute hand, a patriot, if a partisan, he loved his native land. So let the morning bells be rung, the banner droop its folds halfway, and while the public pen and tongue their fitting tribute pay. Shall we not vow above his bier to set our feet on party lies, and wound no more a living ear with words that death denies? 1886